9.07 o'clock, I call the May 4th, 2022 meeting of the Franklin County Council to order. Please pause for a moment of silence. Please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Announcements from the chair. All citizens are now welcome to attend public board and committee meetings in person. Meetings are live streamed by Franklin TV and shown on Comcast Channel 11 and Verizon Channel 29. In an effort to maximize citizen engagement opportunities, citizens will be able to continue to participate remotely via phone or you may click the Zoom link that is on the posted agenda and on the town's website. Phone number is 929-205-6099 and the meeting ID is 832-9243-7744 and then you need to hit the pound sign. If residents are just interested in watching the meeting, it will also be live streamed by Franklin TV and again shown on Comcast Channel 11 and Verizon Channel 29. Uh, one other announcement, Councillor Chandler is, uh, just had some minor surgery and he is unable to attend this evening and will not be uh, coming in remotely. Next item on the agenda, citizens' comments. Citizens are welcome to express their views for up to three minutes on a matter that is not on the agenda. The council will not engage in a dialogue or comment on a matter raised during citizens' comments. The town council will give remarks appropriate consideration and may ask the town administrator to review the matter. Is there anyone in council chambers that would like to speak on an item not on tonight's agenda? Please, uh, just come forward. Name and address, please. Colin Cass, 146 Longham Road. Excuse the note. I've been thinking about the environmental crisis. If you've been paying attention, you can name a dozen ways in which the global environment is threatened. Um, so I won't bore you with another rehearsal. I've also been thinking about our abundance of other crises, also too familiar to need reciting. The effect of all these crises on the environmental problem is predictable because we have been watching the same show for the past 30 years. Attention will shift, a sense of urgency will be lost, priorities will get reshuffled, targets and deadlines will slip again, we will be offered some low-hanging fruit or maybe just more promises, interested parties will get their way, and the problem will not have been solved. My question is, 
What should the Franklin Town Council be expected to do in the face of a global problem like climate change? The council could leave it to the international community to figure it out, or the federal government, state government, political parties, the courts, corporations, environmental groups, dedicated individuals. Unfortunately, the inadequacy of all these solutions is well known. So I'll offer my own solution for what it's worth. Of course, we should accept help wherever it comes from, but the town should expect to act independently and single-mindedly toward net zero for Franklin. No town business could occur without net zero as an explicit objective. The town's budget should begin from that expensive premise. The result will be imperfect, of course, but Franklin will continue to behave like the green community that it is and should be. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. Is there anyone else in council chambers that would like to speak on an item not on tonight's agenda? Seeing none, I'll go out to uh, Zoom land and is there anyone out on Zoom that would like to speak on an item not on tonight's agenda? Okay, moving on. Uh, next item on the agenda is the approval of minutes. Uh, I'd entertain a motion to approve the minutes from the March 16th, 2022 meeting. So moved. Second. Motion and second. Discussion, additions, deletions. Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? <clears throat> motion carries. I'd now entertain a motion to approve the minutes from April 6th. 2022. So moved. Second. Motion and a second. Discussion? Additions? Deletions? Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries. Okay, uh, we'll move on. The next item on the agenda is proclamations and recognitions, and we have one uh, this evening. Uh, where we are going to recognize Harriet DiMartino, who reached her 100th birthday on April the 18th. And I know her two sons are here, uh, Donnie and David. Uh, I know Harriet is home watching on Zoom. Uh, so uh, with that, I'd ask Donnie and Dave to come up to the microphone. <coughs> Okay, Town of Franklin, a proclamation honoring Harriet DiMartino on the occasion of her 100th birthday. Whereas Harriet DiMartino was born on April 18, 1922, in Lancaster, New Hampshire, to Cora and Frederick Congdon, attended Lancaster schools and graduated from Lancaster High School, where she played varsity basketball, and whereas Harriet attended and graduated from the University of New Hampshire, 
where she met her future husband, Dominic DiMartino, with whom she shared a passion for ballroom dancing, and whereas during World War II, Harriet taught school while Dom was drafted into the Army and was assigned to the China-Burma-India Theater, where he assisted with the building of airport runways with the Army Corps of Engineers. And during their years apart, Harriet and Dom wrote one letter a day, every day, to each other. And whereas Harriet and Dom were married on June 1st, 1946, and moved to Franklin soon thereafter, where they built a home on Lincoln Street and shared more than six decades together, raising their five children, hosting annual Thanksgiving dinners for the extended family, avidly supporting the Patriots as a 25-year season ticket holder, running the family business, D. DiMartino Construction Company, and spending summers at their cottage in West Falmouth. And whereas Harriet and Dawn, upon their retirement, enjoyed their time together between a condo in Hollywood, Florida, their summer home in West Falmouth, and their family home in Franklin until Dom's passing in 2011 at the age of 91. And whereas since 2018, Harriet has resided at her home in Franklin, where she welcomes visits from family and friends and enjoys reading crossword puzzles and Sunday mass broadcasts from Notre Dame, remains a loyal New England sports fan and is a loving and devoted mother of her five children, grandmother to her nine grandchildren, and great-grandmother to her eight great-grandchildren. Wow. Now therefore be it known that Harriet DiMartino is recognized with warmth and best wishes by the town council of the town of Franklin on the occasion of her 100th birthday, April 18, 2022, Signed Thomas D. Mercer, Chairman, Franklin Town Council. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Roy, Representative Roy has a proclamation from yes, the state. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, congratulations uh, having a mom who goes to 100 and a dad who uh, went to 91, uh, and that was on Lincoln Street in Franklin. Um, I would suggest bottling that water and selling it. Uh, you guys will make better water. <laughs> I want water from that house. It's, it's my great pleasure to bring you um, a resolution from the Massachusetts House of Representatives congratulating uh, Harriet. Is Harriet citizen one? On uh, Zoom here. No, Harriet. Oh, she's on she's television. Yeah, no, she's on. Yeah, she's watching it. On TV. Watching it on TV. Hello, Harriet. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I have these resolutions, which actually uh, have to be heard on the House floor, and uh, was heard on April 14th of 2022. And uh, Harriet, uh, it was unanimous. Everybody loved you, and they loved uh, hearing the story uh, about your life. Uh, it reads very much uh, like uh, uh, Chairman Mercer read, so, but there were a few things that, uh, that uh, were not in his that I do want to uh, call to uh, your attention. And I especially like that uh, 
Harriet and Dom annually hosted the Congdon side of the family for Thanksgiving, and she was a fabulous baker of pies and cookies, and to this day, her cookie jars always have treats for those who visit. And uh, Harriet, I'll be over to <laughs> keep that cookie jar full. And, uh, and I want to say that the uh, members of the Massachusetts House of Representatives hereby join with family and friends in paying honor and tribute to Harriet DiMartino and extend to her their sincere congratulations and best wishes on the occasion of her 100th birthday and living life to the fullest. And be it further resolved that a copy of these resolutions be forwarded by the Clerk of the House of Representatives to Harriet DiMartino. It's signed by Ronald Mariano, the Speaker of the House, Stephen T. James, the Clerk of the House, and uh, myself, whose great honor it is to be uh, Harriet's uh, state representative uh, in the legislature. So let me present this to the both of you. And uh, not to be outdone, but the governor heard I was coming here tonight and uh, to celebrate a 100th birthday. And uh, he asked if I would be so kind as to deliver a certificate from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, saying, Harriet DiMartino, on behalf of the citizens of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I congratulate you on the joyous occasion of your 100th birthday, this 18th day of April in the year 2022, and it's signed by both uh, Charles Baker and Karen Polito, the Lieutenant Governor. So congratulations. Uh, tell mom we love her. Say hello. <clears throat> Harriet, we'll see you tomorrow for those cookies. <laughs> Franklin resident um, all my life, or my mother would say not quite yet. <laughs> but I uh, married my high school sweetheart. Um, we are we are Franklinites uh, to, to the core. This is a, an incredible honor. Uh, thank you very much. And I didn't know who to give these to, but the, the three pictures, I believe, uh, Chairman Mercer has seen these on my phone. Um, but some pictures of mom blowing out her candles on her 100th birthday there. So I'll at least have the council appreciate that she looks pretty good for it. <laughs> <laughs> and as uh, one of these years we'll actually do, but there's a t-shirt that you see in those catalogs that says, uh, you know, I'm trying to live forever and doing pretty well so far. Well, mom, thank you very much. Okay, uh, moving on, I'm going to uh, change the order up a little bit and out of respect for uh, Congressman Upton's time, he's uh, trying to make the circuit all around the uh, districts. So uh, with that, Congressman, please come, come forward. And first I'd like to welcome Congressman Auchincloss, and I just want to thank you for attending the Frank Franklin Town Council meeting. <coughs> as far as I know, and I've been involved in local government for <coughs> almost four decades, uh, Franklin has never had their congressman attend a meeting to discuss policy at the federal level and how it can benefit our organization here at the local level. So we thank you very much for your willingness and bravery to attend this evening <laughs> and be the first federal elected representative to visit 
one of our meetings. For the public tonight, I want everyone to know that I made this inquiry to the congressman because there's been so much activity at the federal level on infrastructure. I thought it might be helpful to have a discussion regarding this this evening. I want to focus on federal policy that affects the operations of our local government, our organization. Not every federal issue without there. Not that they're not important, but we asked the congressman to come for his time uh, to talk about things that affect us right here in our community. So without further ado, uh, Congressman, please. Uh, Chairman Mercer, Town Councilors, State Representative Roy, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm coming in a little light here. You had a, a town resolution, a state resolution, a governor's resolution for Harriet. I don't have a congressional resolution. How we gotten Joe Biden to sign something? <laughs> But happy birthday, Harriet. May we all have 100 years as, as well lived as yours clearly have been. Um, Chairman, I, I would like to uh, go over federal policy that we are working on in the 117th Congress that I think that we can get past in the next six months before the midterms. If that's, if that's OK with you, I think it'd be helpful for our constituents to hear what we're working on in Congress. Uh, and not just the whole panoply of everything that every wish list item from every member, but truly five things that I, I think we can accomplish in the remainder of 2022. And I'll, I'll be uh, brief and then, of, of course, welcome questions from our constituents on them. And I'm going to start at the widest scope and, and then zoom in to the, to the local, if that's all right with you. And at the widest level in, in international affairs, uh, we are still grappling daily with the greatest assault on the post-war international rule-based order that we've seen in my lifetime, certainly, which is the war in Ukraine. Uh, starting on February 24th, as Russian tanks rolled across the border, uh, we have seen an assault on Ukrainians' sovereignty, democracy, prosperity, and uh, their, their right to self-determination. Uh, despite the best efforts of U.S. intelligence and U.S. diplomacy, Europe was largely caught unsuspecting by that invasion. Uh, but we have rallied in, in unity, NATO, and allies in, in East Asia as well in support of Ukraine. And we'll continue to provide substantially a, a blank check for any arms, training, and materiel that the Ukrainian forces need to defend their homeland against this unprovoked invasion. Uh, on April 19th, this war really pivoted from uh, a more mobile war of maneuver centered around the capital in Kiev towards a war of attrition in the east, with the Russian focus clearly now on claiming control over the Donbass and southern Ukraine, trying to landlock and dismember the country, uh, and trying to gain uh, control over the, the population that has the largest percentage of Russian speakers and, and that has some of the more economically prosperous parts of the country. Uh, and Congress remains in bipartisan, strong consensus that that's an unacceptable outcome. We are seeing Republicans and Democrats from far apart come together and in strong support of the president's uh, sending of arms, ammunition, uh, defensive and offensive equipment, humanitarian aid, and the imposition of economic sanctions against Russia to try to give the Ukrainian forces the fairest fight they could possibly get. And it uh, certainly remains my commitment, and I know the commitment of many in Congress, that we are seeking a complete Russian defeat in their attempts to, to dismember the sovereignty of Ukraine. We are also, of course, dealing with uh, 
the ongoing international challenge, uh, transnational challenge indeed of COVID. Uh, two years in, we have largely gotten back to normal and that is to be celebrated. Uh, and yet we know that we need to maintain vigilance in preparing and preventing future surges and variants of COVID. Uh, there is a $15 billion package pending in Congress that would really allocate funds across three different purposes. One would be research and development at the National Institutes of Health to study new variants, to prepare a universal coronavirus vaccine, uh, and to work with the private sector to make sure that we can uh, produce a new vaccine if necessary in record time. Uh, $9 billion would go towards stockpiling critical therapeutics and other personal protective equipment. And $5 billion would go towards international vaccination efforts, especially for countries that had not hit the 70% vaccination threshold that is the, is the World Health Organization target. Uh, $15 billion to prevent and prepare for a future surge is money well spent. An ounce of prevention worth a pound of pain. We've spent trillions dealing with the ramifications of COVID. And uh, I strongly believe, and I'm working towards 15 billion to put us in the best possible position to pre ever prevent any more of the, of the strife and strain that we all experienced over the last two years. Uh, part of what we all went through uh, between the pandemic and the war has been a real upending of supply chains and a recognition domestically that uh, our supply chains, our manufacturing are not as resilient as they should be. And this is the third item that I believe Congress can pass in the coming uh, six months, which is the America Competes Act. This is a largely bipartisan effort, many sections of which being bipartisan, the overall package we'll see, uh, that makes critical investments in manufacturing and workforce development, in research and development, basic science, which of course Massachusetts excels in, uh, supply chain resilience, and uh, job training all of which, one, will make our country more resilient and sustainable, but two, will have the effect over the medium term of lowering costs uh, and making us more productive. Finally, uh, excuse me, not finally, but, but fourth, uh, many of our constituents will have, uh, have heard the ongoing saga in 2021 of Build Back Better and the various domestic uh, priorities that were being bandied about and, and uh, debated and which stalled in the Senate. A, a significantly slimmed down version of that package I think is possible to pass and, and I would support passing. The, the citizen who spoke first here uh, tonight talked about the urgency of the moment for climate change and this package, uh, while not an all-encompassing fix, would be the largest investment in clean energy and climate resilience in history by any entity, government or private sector. $550 billion for clean energy tax credits. Uh, paid for through uh, slightly higher taxes on corporations and high income individuals and through Medicare negotiation of drug prices. This is a bill that we have the votes for. We've got the votes in the Senate to pass this bill. We've already passed it in the House, which I voted in favor of. And uh, it's time to bring it to the floor and ensure that the United States can meet the commitments we made in Paris and thereby has the moral standing to twist some arms in our international engagements to get other countries to meet their Paris Accord commitments. We absolutely need to, uh, to pass this before the midterms. We also need to pass before the midterms the Electoral Count Act, which would formalize that Congress's role in tabulating electoral results from the states as ministerial only, that there is no role for Congress or the Vice President in, uh, in 
form in, in recognizing alternative slates of electors. We saw this, of course, on January 6, 2021. That was my second day in office. Uh, and the, the disinformation surrounding the Congress's role in, formula, in formalizing Electoral Count Act uh, led, in some measure, to the attempted insurrection that we saw at the Capitol. And we should not be reliant on any one individual's judgment, as we were with Vice President Mike Pence. It should be formalized into law. We've got bipartisan consensus on the Electoral Count Act reform, and, and that, as with the others, we need to pass before the midterms. And then finally, I'll close uh, with the most directly local, uh, which of course is infrastructure. We passed in, uh, in March of 2021 the American Rescue Plan, which did a number of things. It got shots into arms, it helped the schools reopen, it uh, provided relief to the hardest hit Americans through $1,400 relief checks, but it also provided uh, roughly $350 billion to state and local governments nationally to be used for a wide variety of purposes, but infrastructure being one of them. Massachusetts received uh, something like $8 billion in this package, $5 billion for the state and $3 billion for municipalities. Uh, and we then, in the fall of 2021, passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which provided a further trillion dollars for water, transit, roads and bridges, and electrical grid improvements throughout the country. Massachusetts receiving somewhere on the order of, of eight to nine billion from that package. Uh, all of this to say is that there are historic sums of money available for the long-standing liabilities that I know that Franklin and other towns are confronting, whether it's subsurface infrastructure, fixing roads and bridges, uh, improving your transit stops, uh, uh, water treatment facilities, and I'm committed to working with you to ensure that we've got local, state, federal alignment to add up to 100% on these projects. I've, I've met already one-on-one -on -one with Franklin, uh, town officials to understand your priorities. I know you're spending a big chunk of your ARPA funds on water projects, which I think, uh, having seen 33 other towns use their funds, uh, I think is a tremendously wise investment, and I commend you for that. I think that is really gonna go a long way. Um, the state's clean water drinking revolving fund, clean water revolving fund, excuse me, is gonna be significantly plussed up by this bipartisan infrastructure law, and so any projects that you can put on that docket have a higher chance of success. Uh, and I know with State Representative Roy, you've got one of the most able uh, legislators in the State House to help you um, be the most competitive you possibly can be for the state programs that, that can match local funding. And I'm certainly here to help uh, with your uh, water infrastructure needs for which there are federal grants as well. And transportation the same, and, and housing, which I know is a significant issue, especially senior housing in Franklin. Um, continue, happy to continue working with you on, on all these issues. Uh, and Chairman, I'm happy to take questions now. Thank you, Congressman. Okay, I will go to the council first. Uh, Councilor Jones. Here, Commissioner. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for coming today. Really, it's truly an honor to have you here. As he is correct, you're the first any to come visit the top council. It's an honor to have you here. Um, you and I last met on Thursday, January 27th in your office. It's a pleasure to sit down with you and discuss my issues. And one of the things I wanted to bring up at the local level that I'd like to reiterate if possible um, is the Franklin Ridge Housing Authority. I know uh, town minister, that's a, that's, a, that's a big deal for him as well, is uh, senior housing, which I know the Franklin Ridge uh, Housing Project um, will best benefit our seniors. Um, one of the things many people may not know is my grandmother-in-law, who unfortunately passed away about three or four years ago, 
was a beneficiary of the existing senior housing, which is which is over there. Um, at the skating rink, this will definitely benefit our citizens. Unfortunately, a lot of us are getting old in this town. Eventually, I might need some space. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, I might need some space up there. Um, that's just one thing I wanted to bring up, um, just as kind of. So the the number one issue I hear from constituents north and south of the district, and the district I represent stretches from Fall River to Brookline, uh, Franklin to Easton, is the cost of housing. In Massachusetts, in greater Boston in particular, over the last 20 years, we've created two and a half jobs for every one unit of housing. And you don't have to be an economist to know what happens when you do that. We've got a lot more demand than we have supply, and prices have been spiraling double digits year over year. It's become a crisis. It is our single biggest handicap as a state for our economic competitiveness, for our ability to attract uh, new business and retain existing businesses. And of course, it's the biggest challenge we have for our citizens who are seeing costs spiral on many facets of their life, but housing is the biggest chunk of their wallet. Uh, so I, I'm a member of the Financial Services Committee, which has jurisdiction over housing. I won't go through every single line item of what we've been working on, but suffice to say that we are looking to far better capitalize uh, the, the public support for housing development, particularly the, the LIHTC program, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, which has been a very successful, very effective federal catalyst for private sector development of affordable housing. Um, I've engaged with the Department of Housing and Community Development at the state level in support of the, the Franklin Ridge Senior Housing Project and continue to be here to, to work with you on, on that development and, and others. Just one more thing, thank you, Mr. Sure. Chairman. Um, Promise not to keep your time, I know you're busy. Um, we have, and I know I have mentioned this to you once before, is we have a, a kind of a daunting underlying major infrastructure issue that we eventually need to address in hopes that we can gather as much funding both locally, state, and federally if possible to address what we refer to as our Beaver Street Interceptor, which is our one of basically one of our largest um, sewer out, outflows from the town. And eventually we're gonna need to start funding that project yeah. because it's 100 years old and eventually it, I shouldn't say eventually, uh, it could break. And if it breaks, that would be extremely um, expensive. My counsel, for, for what it's worth, uh, and I yeah, I don't claim to, to know the full town's capital improvement priorities, and I, I know from my time as a city councilor that that is a very intricate process. What I will just say is this, is there is more funding available for water infrastructure than there, I would say, arguably ever has been, maybe since the sewers were first constructed in Massachusetts 100 years ago. Because we've got the bipartisan infrastructure law, we've got the American Rescue Plan, so two different sources of federal funding. Uh, we've got the state, which is, uh, with the with the PFAS issues, with the lowering of the parts per trillion, that's acceptable, the state has put new monies down for this. Uh, this is a time to act. Now, every other town in my district is also recognizing that. <laughs> <laughs> But as I said, your, your, your decision to put ARPA funds down towards water, I think, is a signal of how um, serious and how committed and, and the, the kind of planning that Franklin is putting towards this, and I think it bodes very well. Congressman, thank you for your time. I think you answered my questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Councilor Jones. Councilor Frangillo. Yeah, thank you. I also want to uh, thank you and echo the thing for, for coming. This is, this is fantastic. Um, one of the things that you know was touched upon um, by the constituent who mentioned uh, our role in addressing the climate crisis 
Uh, I'm currently working with students to inventory where greenhouse gas emissions are coming from, and I expect uh, with, with fairly high confidence that what we'll find is similar to the rest of uh, the country and that most of our emissions are coming from transportation. And uh, as we continue to put money into um, infrastructure, how do we ensure, how have we been ensuring that well, we're not continuing to fund the very same system that, that led to the amount of uh, emissions that we have? Uh, most, you know, right around the corner, we're about to put 300 million, or proposing to put 300 million into uh, the 495-90 uh, interchange, which will improve some safety and, and get a few more cars through, but for uh, less than half that money, we could uh, double the tracks on Franklin, fully electrify that rail, have multiple trains going, and get a whole bunch more riders off the road and make it a lot easier uh, to, to get to Boston. And we also have regional transit authority uh, that's struggling to uh, have an efficient bus system. Um, how do we continue to encourage uh, states and, and local governments to use that, that money on uh, things that are in line with our climate goals? Uh, it's a, I agree with everything you said in the premise of that question. And as a member of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, uh, at the federal level, we worked to make the bipartisan infrastructure law much less car-centric in its approach. Now, I would, I would be disingenuous if I said we fully succeeded. We did not. It is still more than to my liking a bill that thinks of mobility as single occupancy vehicles. Uh, and we do have a lot of work to do to fix our roads and bridges in the country. I don't think anybody's denying that we've got to pave the roads and, and fix the bridges. We are pulling back significantly on the expansion of new highways, which is success in, in and of itself. And there are many, many more funding streams available for on-demand transit, for public transit. And Massachusetts is getting about two, two and a half billion dollars for public transit overall through the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, and through investments in walking and cycling infrastructure as well, all of which are, uh, as you know, through your strong towns uh, engagement, really critical for improving our carbon footprint and also public health and civic engagement more broadly. Um, I will say, I was, I, I was able to speak with Secretary Buttigieg, who was the, the head of the Department of Transportation, when he first took office, and he said, uh, when we were talking, he, he bragged about being the first mayor in the Midwest to abolish parking minimums. And that is a strong indication that the Secretary of Transportation of the United States is thinking diff differently about mobility. So I think you guys can all appreciate that um, abolishing parking minimums is a tough thing to do at the local level. If he would brag about that as a as a indication that he is truly thinking differently, and it's uh, I've been engaged with him uh, to make him aware of bus issues that we have and commuter rail issues that we have in Massachusetts, so that when we start to submit these projects for the regional and federal grants, that he's he's keyed in, keyed into it. Thank you very much. So, yeah. Thank you, Councillor Frontillo. Councillor Hamblin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you, Mr. Congressman, for being here with us tonight. Um, and all your comments so far, I do um, want to quickly ask you a question about the America's, America Competes um, project. What is it? America Complete? America Competes Act. Competes Act. Yes. Um, so we, we talked about the supply chain issues, and I think all of us, I feel that from the from the town 
um, to the local stores. But um, one of the other things that had came to light during the pandemic was food insecurity, and food security, and the food supply chain as well. And um, how do we make sure that we have local food that's fresh? And so there's, have you thought about that in this America's Compete Act? Uh, so the, the food supply chains are, are not, the short answer is that they're not really being addressed by the American Competes Act. The American Competes Act is a, is a lot about um, semiconductor manufacturing, which is, been a, is one of the reasons, for example, that cars, probably the primary reason that cars have become so much more expensive alongside the lockdowns in, in China. Mm -hmm. um, so Competes does not really address the food supply chains, uh, partly because that's done through a, a separate committee, through a separate process known as the Farm Bill. Um, but I, what I will say, though, is that working with my colleague Jim McGovern, who is really the, the most prominent advocate for food security in all of Congress and has made that one of the hallmarks of his career, we are making serious progress on guaranteeing uh, that every school-aged person, every school-aged child in, in the United States gets a fully nutritious set of meals every single day. Uh, to stop with uh, you know, school lunch debt, for example, to guarantee breakfast and a hot lunch, uh, this is something that was crystallized during the pandemic, that when the schools were closed, it was not just lack of academic and socio-emotional development for kids, but actually a lack of, of access to nutrition for kids. Um, and uh, I expect that this term or next, we are gonna get to a place where nationally we're able to guarantee that, that kind of food security for children at least. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Hamlin. Councilor Coney and Ledger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome, Congressman. It's nice to see you again. I'm hoping that it falls in line with some of your comments on the COVID crisis and how you outlined the five uh, priorities that you're dealing with. And I know that things have gotten a little derailed um, with COVID, but I think I can speak for a lot of people that these are tough times, right? These are times people are scared. People don't really know what to believe anymore. They're looking to elected officials for messaging, for hope. Um, and I remember you ran on a platform of public safety and you talked a lot about trying to end gun violence, trying to work on drug addiction problems. And you know, I'm just wondering if you have a message for our constituents listening tonight that might give them a little bit of hope in these very, very, very difficult times. We've seen an uptick in local hate crimes, we've seen an uptick in uh, mental health issues, we've seen an uptick in people not really knowing quite what to do next, and I think people's nerves are, are on edge, um, and it'd be great if we could turn to our federal officials and say, what can you guys do to help? Uh, it, I think about this daily. Uh, the, there's a surge in children's mental health issues, talking with school adjustment counselors, with mental health providers, with teachers and parents and students. Uh, yes, it was in large measure the pandemic, but we know that there were serious challenges before the pandemic as well. Uh, and we've got to address children's mental health, not just on the supply side, on providing enough of the beds and inpatient and outpatient services that they need, but also having hard conversations about what is driving this foundationally. Why are, why are kids, so many kids, not, not in great socio-emotional shape. And what it feels like to me from talking to constituents young and old is that there is a pervasive sense of anxiety right now. 
anxiety about the systemic challenges that we have, whether it's COVID or climate change at the international level or war, uh, price hikes that are uh, forcing really hard trade-offs. And yet there is not a sense of agency. People don't feel oftentimes that they themselves can make an impact. And so that asymmetry between anxiety and agency leads to, I think, that sense of hopelessness that you were saying. Um, and yet I think the what has made this country great is that we have never given into that sense of hopelessness, that it is always uh, Americans looking at challenges and rolling up their sleeves and binding them, themselves together in, in voluntary and political associations to overcome them. I've got every confidence that we're going to do it again. I really do. And although Congress looks <laughs> totally dysfunctional on TV, I get that. <laughs> you watch uh, MSNBC or Fox, or if you go on Facebook, you probably think that you know we're all Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever, and just complete clowns. But you know we're not. There, there, there are the vast majority of those people, whether I agree with them or not, are there trying to represent their constituents and trying to work together. And there's more things that we're agreeing on and are getting accomplished that are not making the news uh, than are than are driving the polarization. So um, my workplace, like any other, can be frustrating at times. My colleagues, like everybody else's, can be frustrating at times. But I, uh, I'm excited for the 118th Congress and to, to go back to work. Great, thank you. Just one last uh, thing. Could you give our class of uh, 2022, our graduating seniors, can you give them some message, some sort of send off? Well, to, to double down on, on the point, uh, and what I say to, to students all the time is get engaged locally. Uh, get off the social media apps that you're on and get engaged locally uh, with whatever problem or endeavor that you're interested in. It doesn't it follow the passion, but start working with people in a, in a authentic, face-to-face -face way. Um, I think it is how we cut through so many of the superficial differences that we have and also how real change is done sustainably. Thank you. Thank you, Councillor Coney Ledger. Councillor Sheridan. Uh, Congressman, thank you for being here. I was very excited to hear about the biking money because we were real from Franklin. We try and get finished, paying more of that. Yeah, so uh, as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, there's at least two grant programs, and we can get you the details. I don't have them on hand, but at least two different grant programs for cities and towns that are trying to do complete streets. Uh, so protected bike, uh, bike, biking infrastructure, street trees, wider sidewalks, uh, curb management. And uh, usually the, these grants want to see that the town is putting down design and planning money and as, that the state is matching it or the state has, has prioritized it as well. And then the grant will come in to get it to 100%. And we're happy to share that information with you. One last, one last thing. I just bought what I hope is my last gas driven for car. So in the new build back better, but will there be more electric charging stations around so the range anxiety? so unclear. Okay. The, the the new version of, of the slim down build back better is, is not yet finalized. Uh, I do think that there will be funding in there as part of that five hundred and fifty billion for clean energy tax credits for electric vehicle charging stations. Um, I will say I am I am happy at the federal level to help catalyze the, the infrastructure around electric vehicle charging stations, but that is something that the private sector can also put some money down for. The utility companies, actually some of the convenience store and gas station companies are trying to get into this business. 
So I don't want to just hand money to industry. I mean, they should be doing a lot of this themselves, but we can kickstart it with some federal funds. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Sheridan. Councilor DeLocco. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for coming, Congressman. Uh, doing a good job. Thank you. Nobody's even said he's done a good job. On the electric stuff, um, is there any, anything out there as far as long-term transportation? I mean, because if we can't do that electrically, you know I mean? We can do it with cars locally and everything like that, but I'm a teamster and, and right now we haven't, I mean, you can, you can do electric trucks locally, but right. you know, long run, you can't do that. So I don't know if there's any money, you know, put into that or. Um, there is, and actually the Department of Energy, I don't remember the, the name of the program, is working with the long haul trucking, with long haul trucking R&D for exactly mm -hmm. that reason. I mean, I, it's no, a good share of the emissions mm -hmm. are from um, long haul trucking. Mm -hmm. uh, also, a lot of, there's a lot of accidents with that as well, mm -hmm. um, and we don't have the battery technology right now to power no, an 18-wheeler yeah. for any mm -hmm. meaningful stretch of time. Mm -hmm. I think, candidly, we're, we're still pretty far away from that. I, uh, I, I don't see that yeah. happening in the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, one thing I would say, though, and Councillor Fungillo pointed this out, transportation is the biggest chunk of U.S. emissions, transportation, agriculture, industry, right. building stock, and yet, the United States is going to account for probably 15% of all future carbon emissions. So when we're talking about trying to get future temperature rises going from 3 degrees down to 1.7, which is probably the goal, the answer, yes, lies with us, and we need to lead the way and walk the talk. But the actual emissions are coming from uh, the developing economies, largely China, India, Southeast Asia. Exactly. And mm -hmm. they're building dozens of coal-fired power plants every year still. Uh, and what we need to be able to do is to deliver cost-effective, highly, effect, uh, highly energy-efficient means of powering those coal-fired power plants without coal. I'm talking about um, small modular reactors, fusion, geothermal, things that you can just swap out and still run the mechanics of that, of that coal-fired plant. That's, that's where it is. That's where it lies. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor DeLarco. Any other councilors? Oh, I'd be remiss if I didn't have a couple. <laughs> uh, I know a year ago uh, you had an experience, a local experience here, uh, where you were involved in a live burn at, uh, with, me. with the Franklin Fire Department. <laughs> and as you know, our fire chief is a constant advocate and has applied for a safer uh, federal grant for more staff. Are there any updates on that grant process? There are, are not any updates on that grant process. I'm with my district director right now. Um, we, can, we can circle back and get you uh, an update. Uh, I did send a, a letter in support of that, and we will make sure to, to continue to press it for you. And if it makes any difference, uh, just to follow up, sure. I'm not sure you're aware, but uh, our fire department was just given a class one ISO grade. Congratulations. One of only nine communities in Massachusetts to receive that. I know it. That's a, that's a hard distinction to get. And uh, uh, that, that takes an incredible amount of work from the firefighters, of course, and also from the town council to make the investments necessary to get that kind of response time and the equipment they need. And it's going to benefit everybody with lower uh, home insurance premiums. So. 
You're right. That they said two and one of this. One other question, or another question, not to slight, the police department, <laughs> soon to become a fully accredited department. Chief Lynch and his staff have done a marvelous job during a difficult period of community policing, policing across the country. I wanted to get your view on the future of policing in our state and what resources may be available for the Franklin Police Department as they aim to maintain the accreditation status or increase that. We can uh, get back to you with federal resources for police officers. I'm not aware of any, I don't believe you've applied for any grants that we're aware of now. Please do keep us apprised if you're applying for those, and we're happy to offer you any resources that we have about what might be available. And I'll just say uh, how strongly I respect and support the work that police officers do. Uh, they are critical in keeping our communities safe and, and welcoming. And uh, I know that it has been harder and harder to recruit new police officers in the last couple of years. And we've got to create an environment where, where people want to put on the uniform and they feel respected in doing so. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, just to piggyback on uh, Councilor Cormier-Ledger and the mental health issue, issues. And this is just a comment more than a question. But wanted to get your thoughts. I think we're all aware of the spectrum of the problem. But oftentimes we feel hopeless in our ability to bring meaningful change uh, or progress. The town's hiring a second mental health counselor for the police department through the ARPA funds. Thank you. Uh, while that will make a significant difference, it still feels like an uphill battle. And is there any consideration at the federal level to expand the mental health services? Uh, there's a tremendous amount of work being done at the federal level for the expansion of mental health services. I, I, uh, I, I couldn't even go through the full roster, but I'll, I'll name a couple of, of examples. One is a funding for the training of mental health professionals. One of the severe challenges we have is we just literally don't have enough mental health providers of, of any kind of occupation, whether it's school adjustment counselors, whether it's uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, etc. And so debt relief for people who take on uh, those careers, uh, grants for, for their education and training, uh, helping the medical providers themselves do recruiting and training for their own workforce, and then also re reimbursement policy. So much of American healthcare is driven by reimbursement policy, and the commercial insurers oftentimes look to Medicare as the standard setter because if, if it's tremendous buying power, it covers so many Americans. And we are working to get Medicare to increase its reimbursement rates for mental health care. And also, and, and this is increasingly critical, having parity for telehealth versus in-person visits. Uh, there are times when it's appropriate and necessary to be in person. There are times when it's fully uh, just as effective and sometimes more effective, actually, it, to, to do it remote. And uh, really, the, the professional should be the one making that decision, and the, re and the insurance company should be reimbursing them at parity. Thank you. Um, finally, we all received notification from your office recently regarding the Virtual U.S. Service Academy orientation yes. for kids in grades 9 through 11. Yes. Great job. Great job. Uh, 
So that's my list. I had to write them down because I'm old. Chairman, I'll just say that one of the most fun parts of my job is getting to call these high school students and tell them they've been appointed to the West Point or to Annapolis or the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, sometimes after a long day on the Hill, you get to talk to an 18-year-old who's just uh, just so excited to, to serve their country, and it's really so motivating. I, I'm looking forward to having another round of those calls next year. Thank you. Okay, is there anyone in the audience that uh, in the council chambers that has a question? I think we hit an awful lot of them. No, we uh, in the back, please, uh, Mr. Sicconi, please come forward. Name and address, please. Sicconi, Chestnut Street. Uh, I wonder if we might use the Congress's might, and when the time comes, some of these funds come through the feds um, with our with our MBTA. Many times through the years, I've been through meetings in this town where we try to get the MBTA to neaten up and revitalize a word that gets used a lot lately. Our dean station to make it more, uh, uh, excuse me, hand, uh, handicapped accessible, neater, better parking lot. It's, it's a big part of our downtown. It's used all the time. It's what you want to see used going forward. You want less vehicles. I hope that you can use some of your might when the time comes to get the, D the MBTA on board, not to just continue to give us lip service, which they have for many years, about <laughs> the whistle issues, the, uh, the, 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 pro, the uh, lot down by Agway, which uh, Mr. Valley fought for many years to get them to do something with, and they just, they just turned a blind eye. So whatever help you can give us would be appreciated. Thank you for your service. Absolutely. It's, an, it's another example of where a local state federal partnership is going to be critical. And I spent a lot of time talking to the MBTA and, and happy to continue to do so with Franklin. Thank you. Uh, was there another hand, please? Eileen Mason from Beaver Street in Franklin. I'm a realtor in town here. I do a lot with the downtown partnership and trying to get commercial businesses in there. As you know, trying to get somebody to really thrive in a downtown environment that's all out at shopping plazas and everything is very difficult. So one of the things, um, the MBTA continuing on that theme is that Dean Station is great downtown, but we don't want to encourage more commuter parking down there. We'd like to get all that commuter traffic to be out at our Forge Hill mm -hmm. Station. And there are there any funds or any way to get a fairly good-sized garage, parking garage, out there at that station so it can handle much more of the commuter traffic and take that uh, transient people. They come in early in the morning, and they get off the train in the afternoon and just take off. And they don't add any benefit to our downtown. Mm -hmm. So that would be one of the questions I have. Uh, so the short answer is there are funds for public transportation improvements, including the, the parking formats. I want to be cautious about making promises because so much of it comes down to the MBTA and State Department of Transportation's own prioritization. And really, where, where the federal grants come in is when a, a town and, a, and the state apply together for something. And, and the town says, here, we've done this. The state says, yes, we're prioritizing it on our, prior, on our internal roster. And we're gotten to 80% together, and we need an extra 20%. Or we've gotten 50% together, and we want us to match. It's one to one. Uh, so we've, we've been working on that in a couple different areas in the district. And uh, happy to you know, 
be a convener in, in, in seeing if the state and, and the town of Franklin can work on a proposal to do that as well. Yeah, because it, it goes hand in hand with what I think Kobe was saying before about Absolutely. the new rails and getting more riders yes. on the rails, but we need a place for them to park. And we need that parking to be robust enough and charging stations and all yeah. that. And, and centralized. And centralized and, and each one of the stations all the way into Boston <coughs> needs this, not just Franklin. That's right. And I would, I would add, and I've had this conversation a lot of times with the state, is that it is way cheaper to store vehicles outside of the city center than it is in downtown Boston, right? right? It's an overall at the state level a very cost-effective way to do the movement of people, which is really what this is about, right? And, it's, mm -hmm. and you know, I think it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to kind of holistically plan like that, but it certainly makes sense. Thank you. Is there anyone else in your uh, council chambers? <laughs> I, would, I would be surprised if you did. <laughs> He's not a Franklin resident. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you, Mr. Carford. I just want to thank you um, because it was brought before, but we are using your ARPA funds. It helped the town tremendously. We just uh, passed our first stormwater utility, and some of those funds are going to be able to assist with that. At the local level, the council has been phenomenal through the years. Um, we've put in more water line and infrastructure improvements than any other community our size. And because of the ARPA funds that come available, we actually move, we have a very strong, aggressive uh, capital management plan. And we're actually able to move up another neighborhood that we're gonna be replacing all the water lines, getting rid of some AC pipe a year ahead of schedule. So that program worked out really, really well for us. And the Beaver Street Interceptor, um, just to give a little update, it was on the, it's right in the middle of the, um, SRS funding, so we're pretty confident that we're going to be able to uh, That's great. afford that. We're, we're getting to the final point. It was going to be $24 million, but I'm giving you a hint. The price is going up. The <laughs> <laughs> so, price is going up for a lot of things. Yeah, besides some supply issues and everything else. But um, we're in good stead for that. We should have the final numbers uh, coming up in May. But uh, no, thank I'm you very sorry. much for the assistance. The extra work that we have to do now. <laughs> but uh, well, thank you very much. This is our DBW. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never really shy about introducing this. <laughs> He's not a Franklin resident. <laughs> uh, Jamie, anything? Nope. I'm all set, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. Hi, Rachel Klukas from Anchorage Road. Um, I think you must be processing right now what, uh, what the rest of the country and Washington is regarding the uh, Supreme Court and decisions that might be coming down. Um, having heard from multiple uh, people here in Franklin and beyond, there's a lot of stress, there's trauma, and there's, uh, and there's a look right now to figure out what, uh, what Congress, uh, where would they currently stand in their ability to uh, uh, in, in their ability to uh, be involved in this conversation um, and what what they currently view their role as. And I'd also like to know, as you uh, are, uh, th this is all really fresh for all of us right now at this very moment, and uh, I would like to know where you feel, what you think your job is right now. Sure. So, just to put the context around your remarks, I'm sure many people here saw two nights ago, a leaked draft of a Supreme Court majority opinion that would overturn Roe uh, in a much much more aggressive format than I think even court watchers were expecting. Now, it should be emphasized this is a draft ruling. Supreme Court justices often do and uh, change their opinions or modulate their opinions and 
it'll be months before we actually get the final verdict. But it looks increasingly likely that Will v. Wade, which has been law of land for 50 years now, is going to be overturned, which means that there will be no federal national protections for women's right to access an abortion. Uh, for constituents in Massachusetts, uh, access to abortion will not change. The state codified the Roe Act in 2020, which guarantees reproductive health care as a, as a right. And in 24 to 26 states in the union, that's going to be the same. But in the other half of the states in the union, they either have trigger laws that immediately are going to rescind uh, access to abortion, or they're going to severely limit access to abortion to the degree that it's functionally impossible to get one for many women, especially low-income women. Uh, this, to me, is a, is a travesty. I think access to reproductive health care is a human right. And uh, the, the justice's draft opinion, to me, does not stand up to either legal scrutiny or does, and does not meet the precedence that he claims it, it does. Um, in the House of Representatives this term, we passed the Women's Health Protection Act, which would codify nationally that women have, uh, have a right to access to an abortion. The Senate has stalled out in considering it. Uh, it's one of many reasons I've called for the abolition of the filibuster, because Americans deserve a majority vote in the Senate to reflect the will, their, their will. And Senator Schumer has promised that he will bring the Women's Health Protection Act or something substantially similar to the floor for a vote so that Americans can at least see where their senators stand on the issue of whether they think uh, reproductive health care is, is a basic right for all Americans. I think in the short term, those of us who are looking to protect uh, women's right to reproductive health care in the states where it's going to be rescinded need to be working primarily with, with Planned Parenthood and Reproductive Equity Now and other groups like that, which have a, a strong track record and who are doing good planning for, uh, with programs and services to reach those women through cross-state care and through the provision of medication by mail. We've seen in Texas, which put in place, as many of you are aware, an incredibly restrictive anti-abortion law some months ago that uh, abortions went down by it's hard to measure, but it looks like by about 10%, which was significantly less than was initially predicted, largely because of the efficacy of, of medications by mail and because a lot of women were able to access care across state lines because of the work of Planned Parenthood and other groups. So mm -hmm. my focus uh, and I, and is gonna be working with those organizations that can provide immediate and direct help to the women who are gonna be affected, who, whose whole conception of what the Supreme Court affords them has been changed overnight. Uh, and then in the long term, uh, it's going to be, <laughs> we need to codify it in Congress because regardless of what the final ruling is, uh, we know that we cannot rely on the Supreme Court to uphold Roe anymore. It's just, it's, it's been clear that that is not a firm foundation and it needs to be the law of the land. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, is there anyone in Zoom that uh, has a question? I don't see any hands up. You, Alicia? Okay, I want to note for the public, the congressman represents 34 communities in Massachusetts. Nonetheless, I can say I have seen him in town, in Franklin, on many occasions. And his presence is very much appreciated. Especially given those 34 communities, everything in DC these days, and a beautiful new son born nine months ago. Congratulations, Congressman, and thank you so much for being here.
to order. Uh, next item on the agenda is hearings. Uh, we have a couple of continued hearings. Uh, Chief is uh, here. Uh, first one is TM1 Solutions Incorporated doing business at 711 Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I'm just going to turn it right over to Lieutenant Zimmerman. <laughs> Good evening, Mr. Chairman, members of the council. Uh, if you'd like, I'd just revisit the uh, the report, please. On Wednesday, March 2nd. Oh, I got to declare the hearing open. Well, that, and I'd also like to indicate that I have spoken with the uh, licensee prior to the commencement here, and I understand that he's prepared to acknowledge the violation to move things along as opposed to going through a full-blown proceeding. Okay. Uh, but I would ask that, uh, suggest that he be given an opportunity to address uh, the fact that he wasn't here for the first initially. Sure. Okay. Save you some time. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> please, uh, if you just come forward to the microphone and uh, acknowledge the fact that you uh, understand that you were in violation. And yes, yes, I was at that location. And that just location. your name and address. Mohammed Tijazi. We need to be unmuted. Uh, we're getting messages from people saying they can't hear us. I'm the franchisee at that location, and uh, my address is 29 Winston Lane, Darwin, Mass. Thank you. Uh, this is a continued uh, hearing from uh, our April meeting, and I guess uh, I'd first like to ask the question why you weren't present at our last meeting. April 13th. April 13th. I never got no, that notice. Okay. Uh, well, we all are. Yeah, sure. Mr. Chairman, I, I believe the first notice was actually mailed. I don't believe it was certified mail, so we can't really prove that they did. You know, they got it um, after the last meeting. Lieutenant Zimmerman had a, an officer take a notice. Please to the two locations and hand-delivered the notice so that we could confirm that they did get a notice that they needed to appear okay. tonight. Okay. All right, uh, Jamie. Three years, Chair. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, to, to the Chief's point, I just want to make note for those at home or here um, that if they look in the packets, we have included all the correspondence uh, that the town did send March 23rd, the letters to all of the, uh, to, the uh, to the owners. But the important point tonight in speaking with all of the owners, in addition to Jimmy D's at the last meeting, um, all of them have told us that they were that they did not receive the notice. But all of them have been incredibly contrite and forthcoming about the violations, and that there was no malicious intent. And there obviously must have been a problem. Either someone threw it out, or something didn't get there in time, or whatnot. But to the chief's point. Uh, they did go hand deliver the second letters, and all the owners are here this evening. So, 
Uh, obviously, uh, the communication, something happened. Uh, I'm not sure we can get to the bottom of it, but we can certainly move forward. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Questions or comments from the council? Council Jones? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I think in all fairness to uh, the miscommunications, miscommunications happen. I don't think um, simply based on the fact that the individual has, has confessed to the mistake, um, that it would be my suggestion to stick with our normal um, procedure, which would be to provide three days uh, for the violation, one day, one day served with two days held in the maintenance for up to two years um, on the day, or on the weekday in which the violation occurred. I agree. Uh, so, uh, would you, is that a motion? I would like to make that my motion, sir. I'll second that. So we have a motion and a second. Discussion on the motion. Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion to uh, for three days, uh, one served, two in abeyance, and hold two in abeyance, and it's on it was served Wednesday. Uh, it was a Wednesday. Yes, sir. Correct. Yes. So. Well, one of the things we did for the last <coughs> was allow a date. So would, would today happens to be the fourth with the eleventh. Sir, we need to put it into our uh, motion. Wednesday the 11th. So again, you have a, uh, you sell alcohol, but you have another business, so you're just simply prohibited from selling alcohol that day. You can still be open for business, you just can't have okay. the sale of alcohol. Okay. I would just like to add into my motion the date of May 11th to be served. Okay. Any further discussion? Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next is uh, Dharma Bhakti Corporation doing business as Liquor World, 365 West Central Street. Uh, is Somebody here representing them? Mark, the uh, I have spoken attorney to him. He's uh, re represented by his attorney as well, and I did speak with both gentlemen prior to the meeting, and the same thing, they do not challenge uh, the uh, violation. As I understand, and I'm sure he's prepared to acknowledge that publicly, and they also have a, a reasonable explanation that they simply didn't receive the value of the Good evening, my name is Attorney Ian Hedges here on behalf of the licensee. Um, so as, as was mentioned, uh, there's no dispute as to the facts of the, the particular scenario as mentioned uh, in the incident report. Um, as to the last, the last week's hearing or the, the prior hearing, um, April 13th. So I think a similar thing happened. Um, Liquor World is a fairly large liquor store, so they get a voluminous amount of mail from, from vendors. Um, so it, it may have either just been misplaced or they simply didn't receive it. Um, but second time around, they were served in hand. So that's the appearance today. Questions from the council? Uh, Councilor Jones? Mr. Chairman, again, in lieu of um, the miscommunication, and again, mistakes happen, that since the individual has confessed to making the mistake, um, we follow, again, our, our normal procedure as having the 
individuals serve uh, three days, one, one day being served, two days held in advance to be served on May 11th. So we be suitable. So we, May 11th, work. Yeah, we requested all three days be served in advance just simply because Liquor World's been operating in, in town for five years. This is their first violation. Uh, they've had a, a clean track record thus far. <clears throat> or comments from the council? I think they're beyond that. Is May 11th? Yeah. Okay. Seeing no further discussion, the vote will come on the motion uh, to have one day served and two held in abeyance. All those are on May 11th. All those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Guys <laughs> Thank you. Uh, going forward, Chief, uh, and uh, Dan, uh, everything like this will go out certified. Absolutely. Without question. Without question. Already been addressed. All right. <clears throat> Thank you. I, I don't mean to interject on this, but I did like the fact that they were hand served. Would that would be would be best better suited? I mean, we're not talking about a lot of violations here, and they're not that often. So, that this seems to have been the most clear-cut way of assuring that this indeed has been received. Mr. Chairman, I, I, I just these are so infrequent, and we send out so much certified mail. I, I just think, you know, we just mailed them out, and it never even dawned on us that that. Uh, that people may have thrown it away by mistake. I mean, most 99% of the mail I get in the mail is all junk. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people just throw things away, or you know, someone even said to me, sometimes the post office. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say, but I think the, the reality is that even for liquor license, anything, uh, we'll be doing certified mail, and it just seems to make the most sense. It never even dawned on me that this was an issue. Chief. And I would agree with the town administrator, Mr. Chairman. I'm in 15 years doing this, if this was the first time that somebody actually didn't show, so the certified basically, you know, works. They do show up. We've never had that happen before. I think if they, you know, do certified, at least you'll know that they got it, and then they still didn't show up, and then you could decide what you wanted to do with something different, sir. Uh, understood, and I think we did the right thing. I, I guess it's just a little piece of me that says they know, they knew, they had an offense. And if it were me, I would certainly be looking for something to come in the mail. But, but we'll do whatever you want, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, we'll move forward with certifying mail. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, Lieutenant. Thank you very much. Yep. What's the difference between certified and registered? Certified, do they have to sign for it? 
But even if it comes back unclaimed after a few weeks, you know right. that it still right. was they delivered. It didn't press. So you have some record. And Can also, you this, uh, the issue I spoke with the uh, congressman privately on the way out was the fact that the unreliability of the U.S. mail that I've personally experienced in the last year or so, mm -hmm. and he acknowledged it's a widespread problem, and he's getting complaints from a lot of his constituents, and they're looking at it. Thank you, Mr. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, moving on, our next hearing is street acceptance. And I will open the hearing on Joseph Circle. You can open our vote. Uh, okay, I'll open our vote, Joseph Circle, and Susan's Way, and a portion of Lawrence Drive. But we'll start with uh, Joseph Circle. Jamie. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Commissioner, I was just having a side comment about the mail for a minute. <laughs> told me a shocking story, so I, was like, <laughs> I was a little taken aback there for a moment. She wins that one. <laughs> what happens when you go on vacation? What? That's what happens when you go on vacation. Reality. So, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. So, we have up on the screen and a public hearing, as you know, uh, tonight. Uh, for a continuation of our street acceptance program. Uh, many residents around town, um, uh, as you know, we're trying to chip away at the street acceptances, and this is the next batch. Uh, for Joseph Circle, Susan's Way, and a portion of Lawrence Drive um, to keep the, moving, uh, moving, <laughs> the meeting moving along. Uh, I will dispense with all the pleasantries because I know we've all been through this many, many times before, and uh, Mark and I are both here as well as the town engineer uh, to answer any questions the council may have or the public may have. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Councilor Hamblin uh, from EDC, do you have any comments? Um, we didn't talk about this. Okay. All right. Then, is there any questions from Sorry. the council? Councilor DeLocco. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Joseph's Way, is it some of that in Bellingham too? This is just our, <laughs> just our session. <laughs> yeah, just our session. He was already getting up. <laughs> so impressive. Uh, you can't feed an oil man. He knows everything. <laughs> uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman. Um, so Joseph Circle does extend into Bellingham. We're accepting proposals from Beach Street to the town line. Um, okay. Well, that's I just didn't know, you know, I just wanted to make sure it was right. Yeah. Councilor Frangelo. Yeah. Same sort of question that I, that I usually have, and I, and I want to be sensitive uh, to time. I understand that we accept these uh, because it's expected of us to accept these, but they give us a rare opportunity to understand uh, how much infra new infrastructure build-out costs the town. Um, and the, the good thing about Joseph is that it's only six homes, and it's not, it's not serving any other purpose but to get those six people to the rest of town. And so uh, we get to do a pretty simple math calculation as to how much are they contributing, those six homes, 
out of their property taxes, what percentage of that or how much money goes toward streets every year, and knowing how much it costs to uh, maintain a street, uh, how much do we need to be setting this up? So my, uh, Mr. Maglio was, was generous enough to provide some recent, uh, most up-to-date construction data on, on a street uh, similar to that. Uh, essentially, annually, we would need to be setting aside just over six grand um, to maintain that, so that by the next life cycle, after 30 years, you know, taking the high estimate, uh, we'd be able to uh, replace it. Uh, we need to be setting aside 6,000. Currently, um, calculating the, the property taxes and what percentage of that goes to uh, streets in town, those six houses pay $336. So that's $5,779 short every year just for that 0.15 miles of road, uh, which is 0.05% of the total roads in town. Um, we're taking a, a near $6,000 loss just from uh, building out that road. Uh, I say this not to say that we shouldn't accept it because you know th this is standard practice and the people who live there um, expect it to be uh, accepted and, and um, we should continue in that. But rather to remind us that uh, if we continue to build out in the way that we build out, we are further indebting the rest of Franklin residents and building out our infrastructure maintenance backlog. Uh, I, I bring it back to three main things, right? If we want to continue the way that we are, either we have to pay more taxes, right? Pay, instead of $336, we need to be paying, um, you know, 200%, no, 2,000% more, uh, more taxes, or we need to be cutting services and not expecting uh, as strong services, or we need to make sure that when we develop new development, it's on existing infrastructure. I say this all because we have Franklin for All uh, rezoning project coming up, and this is a reminder of the importance of that project. I think actually we need to do a little of all three of those, but just this small piece, 0.15, is um, further indebting uh, the rest of Franklin, Franklin's residents and setting us in the wrong direction. Happy to accept this, but just keep that in mind. Thank you, Councilor Fondillo. Any other councilors? Councilor Jones. Thank you, Chairman. Just a quick question to the town agent. We mentioned that this road was partially in Bellingham. Is Bellingham <coughs> currently accepted this as a public way? I do not know that. Okay, just, it was just a curious question. Mm -hmm. yes. No. Mark. Are you through? Mark put up his. I, I know you did. I, am <laughs> <laughs> I haven't recognized him yet. Oh. <coughs> you were still talking. I thought he was going to say something. Um, I was just a curious question. The only reason I ask is because of A, it seemed kind of silly if we were the only ones to accept half the road when the other half would still be private and it would be uh, just, you know, uh, wouldn't be a brilliant benefit to the street as a whole. Attorney Sura. The general practice would be whether it's across town lines or not to accept on the last public way, accepted way. So we wouldn't leapfrog either. You would start from the accepted way, which is Beach Street. And accept right. from there. We're always very careful when we're looking at the roads, Mike and myself, to ensure that whatever we're accepting goes into ex roads that are already accepted. Okay. Let me ask a question. Councilor DeLarco, let me a question. Whether we accept it or not, if something happens down that road, are we responsible for it? Mr. Chairman, yes. 
snow, <laughs> meat. And the question. Uh, I mean, ultimately. And the answer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the road. Yeah. yeah. So, I, mean, it, 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 I mean, the short term issue is, is that for decades there have been miscommunication and misunderstanding about private ways. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, roads that are built today, they're designated that, it's clear, it's not usually happens anymore, but in a lot of communities there still are private ways. Um, it's more clear, the legal language is probably better than it was 40 years ago. So your point comes with the Lurco. Um, for the people that live there now, you know, this is about emergency services and about what kind of conceptually is common sense about snow plowing and maintenance, et cetera. Um, I would just also note um, really quickly to Councilor Frangillo's points, uh, number one, we do receive, albeit not anywhere near that cost, we do receive a Chapter 90 reimbursement for, for publicly accepted roads. It doesn't come close to paying for it, but it does help the overall pie grow, and the legislature, I believe, has put, I think, 300 million more into Chapter 90 um, due to the asphalt increase in costs and stuff, so we should get a, a higher percentage of the pie. And secondly and finally, I'd just say to Councilor Frangillo's point, uh, he, he may be accurate about this, um, but th those dynamics are gonna change, are, are a massive cultural change and policy change that I think state and local leaders have to consider and has to embed into the planning board and permitting processes in the future about what is proper mitigation of a project. Um, and that's a complicated conversation, I know you know it is, um, but uh, for the people that are there now, uh, Councilor Oracle nails it. It's, it's really about emergency services. Okay. See Thank you. Councilor Cormier-Ledger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Just a quick question for my own clarification. By accepting these as public ways, do we also take on any existing sidewalks? Or is it just the street itself? No, it's a public. Yeah. Whatever the layout was, it depends. I don't yeah. know if there's sidewalks down there. I don't think there is. I don't think so. On any of them that we're talking about? It, it varies. It varies. It depends what was approved by the planning board in the first place. There, okay. there may be sidewalks on both sides. What you're accepting is a layout. And then within that layout is certain improvements, roadway, uh, utility lines, easements that service it. It's a package and it varies from one particular project to another. Okay, so it, it, if there I, were a sidewalk, they would be included. Yeah, yeah, in this case, we okay. don't believe there are. Okay, so to Councillor Frangillo's point, then the the math actually gets a little bit worse. Yeah, there's a sidewalk, right? Because sidewalks then become, and again, I'm not I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it or that we shouldn't pay for it, but that becomes an added expense that we now have to take into account. Except the sidewalks are an alternate, alternate means of transportation, so they've got a plus to them as well. That just adds to our $160 million backlog of infrastructure projects for the town. But it's great that we keep pointing this out. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Council Cormier-Ledger. Any other comments from the Council? Anyone in the audience? Without dragging this out, I would like to point out that this particular one is a success story because this is one that was there before right. I got there. The original developer had defaulted essentially. We made money on that. It was a bank account, mm -hmm. but the developer's name was on it with the town, and the developer would not sign off. Uh, ultimately, another developer came by that wanted to, that needed that roadway for frontage, and Mike was able to negotiate a deal that got us the money release made some improvements, so it was a win-win all the way around. 
set. Okay, uh, Susan's Way and a portion of Lawrence Drive. Questions or comments from the council? Questions or comments from the audience? Jamie, anything to add? No. Okay. I will uh, close the public hearings on uh, Joseph Circle, Susan's Way, and a portion of Lawrence Drive. Okay, moving forward. Uh, next item is presentation and discussion. Uh, FY21 Annual Financial Audit, Melanson and Heath. Jamie. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the time has come. I want to uh, first uh, introduce Scott McIntyre. Scott, thank you for uh, your patience and making it through this entire meeting uh, tonight. And I am incredibly impressed. Right when the audit was announced, the video came on. He was ready to go. I wasn't sure where anybody was anymore, but Scott, I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, I just want to first congratulate Scott and Melanson uh, on completing this audit. Um, you know, this is a story that doesn't get told and it is worth uh, telling really quickly. Um, you know, I think every sector during COVID has been impacted significantly um, with uh, transportation of documents and scanning and um, new ways of communicating uh, boxes and boxes of documents. And I just want to commend the finance staff here in town uh, Chris Sandini's office, uh, as well as the treasurer collectors, and uh, Melanson for their incredible diligence uh, at trying to get all of the proper documentation to everybody in a, uh, a very tense year. Um, and so, uh, without further ado, I think Alicia's put the audit up on the screen so folks at home can follow along uh, to the narrative. And um, I will now pass it over to Scott and his staff at Melanson and Heath to go through. Uh, the fiscal year 21 annual financial audit. How are you doing, Scott? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Jamie and Mr. Chairman, members of the town council. Uh, thank you for the invite to come on this evening and walk through uh, the results of our audit at your June 30, 2021 financial statements. I'm going to say a couple of things, but maybe to help Felicia out a little bit. Uh, Felicia, I'm going to begin um, with page one, which is our independent auditor's re report. Uh, before I touch base on that, uh, auditing standards uh, really require uh, us to communicate, you know, with those elect those charts of governance. In this case, it's the town council in Franklin. You know, just a little bit about how the audit went. And very pleased to be able to report to you folks uh, once again that our audit of your financial statements went very well. Uh, what that really means, that I think of it in the most basic terms, is that we when we came in, we found the books and records to be in good working order. Uh, and as a result of that, we did not need to propose any significant audit entries as a result of the procedures we performed. Uh, audit standards also require us to communicate uh, a discussion with you about generally accepted accounting principles and um, pleased to be able to report that um, there were no disagreements between the town of Franklin and our firm on how to apply generally accepted accounting principles. And really the last of the three required communications deals with accounting estimates in your financial statements. And there's several in there. The largest of which are, are your estimated liabilities to your net pension OPEB. And, and um, oh, that was, I kind of watched that. 
How about your net pension liability and your net OPEP liability? I kind of blended the two together there. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, but your net pension liability and your net OPEP liability and some of the related uh, deferred accounts. That I'll speak about those uh, those two liabilities in a moment. Uh, other significant estimates deal with our um, estimated allowance for double accounts and useful lives of capital assets and things like that. Uh, but other large ones, the, the, the actuarially determined ones, the pension and OPEP, they, they are actuarially determined by, by experts in that field. Uh, you've reviewed, as we have, uh, all of the assumptions behind uh, those estimates, and um, we, we agree with those. I'll speak a little bit more about them, but uh, there are standards behind those estimates as well. And so with that, if I could begin uh, on, on page one of, of, of the report, and um, I don't have it up on, on a screen here, but I, I should, there it is right there. And I'm gonna go, oh yeah, um, this is our, our independent audit, auditor's report. Uh, it goes on for three pages. I'm not gonna walk through it in a tremendous amount of detail. In essence, what it says is that, in our opinion, based on the procedures we've, we've applied, and we've applied the procedures required by two sets of auditing standards, generally accepted auditing standards and government, generally accepted government auditing standards. And based on those procedures, in our opinion, your financial statements are prepared and materially fairly presented in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Nothing new here. This is the same opinion the town's received for many, many years, uh, but it's important to talk about each year that the results of the audit are a clean opinion on your financial statements and that they are materially presented in, in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. I'm going to skip all the way over to, to, to page 17 of, of, of the document. Um, and, and this, I'm going to skip over management's discussion and, and analysis uh, and, and jump, you know, management's discussion and analysis attempts to put into words some of the results of operations. Um, Alicia, I'm gonna, I probably gave you the wrong page. It's a couple of pages prior to, to that. But um, I, I skipped over management discussion and, and analysis. Uh, that's a great resource to go back to at a later point in time to understand why certain key account balances may have, may have changed. Now the page that's up on the, on, on the screen for, for, for viewing here is, is, the, uh, is the second page of your statement of deposition. The prior page of this is, is the asset side of your equation and the page that, that was just up is the, the liabilities and in and, 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 and that position of, of your governmental activities and business type activities. I, I start on this page, uh, we're gonna get to the general fund, which is the primary operating fund of the town in just a moment, but we don't think any conversation about a local government's financial statements would be complete without looking at some of the long-term liabilities, particularly that pension liability and the net, net OPEB liability. So if we focus just for a moment in that first column of numbers, almost in the middle of the page, you see your net pension liability, again, in that first column of numbers of about $38.8 million, okay? Now again, that's your proportional share, Franklin's proportional share of the Norfolk County Retirement System's unfunded liability. A couple of real key points with, with respect to that account balance. A year ago, that account balance had a, had a balance of 44 million. So it's actually gone down significantly from the prior year. Uh, and, and it's gone down from the prior year predominantly because the investment earnings of the fund exceeded expectation. Now, with respect to investment earnings on the fund, I think it's important to point out, as is disclosed in your footnotes, that the fund is using a, a discount rate. It's a fancy way of saying what you expect the future earnings to be. 
using a, a, a discount rate of seven and three quarters percent. I will tell you that Parac, which is the state oversight agency, is a little bit concerned that that could be a little bit high. Uh, I understand that, uh, but I think one one thing that uh, Franklin can point to, to to support that uh, assumption is that to date, uh, like to date, that is the earnings have actually exceeded that seven and three quarter estimated amount. So while Parac's concerned about it, it certainly is the results have been achievable through the through this uh, through this audit. Now back on, um, on about halfway down the first column of numbers, you had your, your net OPEP liability with an account balance of uh, almost uh, $68.7 million. That, that account balance is also down from the prior year. A year ago, uh, that, that account balance had a liability of $71 million. So it's gone down about $3 million. <laughs> and, and, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and the re reason for the reduction primarily is experience uh, gains. Uh, claims were not as high as 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 were estimated in, in the budgeting. I won't say budgeting process. It, we're not we're not it, claims were not as high as expected for the for, for the pool as, as as a whole. So both of those key account balances they they're certainly large numbers. Uh, but I think it's important to point out uh, on the pension liability, the Norfolk County system is about seventy percent funded. This is not a I did not look up statistics on this, but I work with a lot of plans in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and the fact that it's 70% funded is very highly funded. It's it's uh, it's much higher than a lot of systems we, we work with. And back on the OPEP liability for a moment, you know, you were, you're about 12% funded. Well, that may not seem like a lot. Um, it, it, it actually is compared to a lot of your peer, peer communities. Um, you know, you put in, uh, you put in a fair amount of money into your OPEP trust fund on, on, a, on an annual basis. And I know from speaking with the, your finance director, that certainly has been a strong attribute from a rating agency standpoint. So while those certainly aren't big numbers, I did want to try to put them in a little bit of context to say that, you know, that pension liability is really 70% funded, and I think it's scheduled to be fully funded by around 2032. And the OPEP liability is about 12% funded, which exceeds a lot of your, your, your peer communities. And with that, if we could go forward to over just a couple of pages, I think it would take us to page page 19. Um, transition the conversation about your, your financial statements from the, the last page really was long-term perspective. Uh, this is your governmental funds, and we're really going to focus on the first column of numbers, which is your general fund. And you know, this is prepared, this balance sheet is prepared on technically it's called the modified accrual basis of accounting. Pretty similar to cash. It's a little few cash basis. There's a few differences, but I, I wanted to point that out so that you have the perspective uh, that this is a, a short-term perspective balance sheet. It also, this page, and, and specifically the third number up from the bottom in that in that first column of numbers, generally speaking, that's the first place that most readers are going to turn to. They're going to look at your unassigned fund balance, and for the town of Franklin, as of June 30, 2021, it had an account balance of $14.3 million. $14 million. As a point of reference, that represents about 11% of your fiscal year 21 expenditures. Uh, also as a point of reference, last year that key account balance, that unassigned fund balance, was about $11.2 million. So you see a nice increase in, the, in, that, in that key account balance. A year ago, uh, you had $11.2 million in that key account, which represented 9.1. 
and you see a uh, several million dollar increase up to the account balance of 14.3, representing 11 percent. One more piece of information on that unassigned fund balance should be looked at in, in, in two. In, you know that one account should, should just be thought of it as as the combination of two numbers. Um, in the, included in that is the town's general stabilization fund, not its capital stabilization funds, but its general stabilization funds. Massachusetts Department of Revenue rules require you to keep the, the, your general fund and your general stabilization fund separate. However, generally accepted accounting principles require them to be put together. So if you look at that $14.3 million, it's really made up of your unassigned fund balance in your general fund, which is the starting point for the Department of Revenue to certify your free cash, of about $6.6 million in your general stabilization accounts of about $7.7 million. And those add up to the combined $14.3 million that you see in that account. There is a, there is a footnote that, that details the, the components of that 14 Point four. So if I went through that fairly quickly, there is a, a, a footnote that describes uh, the components of, of, of those two account balances in there. But really, that's really a, uh, actually one more page I, I wanted to, to turn to. If we could go over to page 24 of the document, I just wanted to point out um, your, your OPEP trust fund. Um, a couple more, a couple more pages, Alicia. One more, please. This one right here. Um, I spoke earlier about uh, how you had several million dollars, uh, you know, in, into your OPEP trust fund. That's that first column of numbers here on this page, and the number at the very bottom of, of that of 9.8 million dollars. That's the, that's the amount in your trust fund for OPEP benefits as of 6-30-21. And I'd like to point out one other uh, component here, and that is, um, you know, you're, you're, you're adding that, that that account balance went up by $3 million. It's the third number up, up from the bottom, okay? And that's a nice increase into, into, your, into your trust fund. It comes from two, two reasons. One, you have about $2 million uh, in, in investment earnings on the portfolio, so 63021 and for the year that ended was a very good year from for, the, for, for your portfolio of assets in your in your trust fund. In addition to the investment earnings, you put in about a million dollars, essentially coming from from the general fund to add three million dollars to the trust fund, and that balance of 9.8 is helping to permit you to use a higher discount rate then other communities may be able to use that don't have significant assets in, in their trust funds, in their OPEP trust funds. You're actually using a discount rate of 7.5%. We work with some communities uh, that are only permitted to use about a, a little over 2% uh, if there's not sufficient assets in, in, in their uh, OPEP trust fund. So I wanted to point that out because OPEP is a, is a big issue with respect to um, governmental fund financial statements these days. And not only is there $9.8 million in there, you added $3 million. A lot of it has to do with, with solid investment earnings, plus the contribution uh, that, that you make from the general fund. And I think it's very important to point out that the portfolio you have there is what's permitting you to use a discount rate of 7.5%. Much, if, if, they, if you only had, let's say, half of that, 
uh, in your portfolio. I, I did not do that. That's not a statistically sound number. But if it was something significantly less than 9.8, you would have a, a much lower discount rate and therefore a much higher um, net, uh, net OPEB liability that we saw on your long-term perspective financial statement. That's a very, very quick walkthrough of, of, of our audit of your, of your financial statements. I will turn it back to the, to the council chair and, and try to answer any questions that the, the council may have at this point in time. Thank you. Love great reports like that. Uh, questions or comments from the council? Councillor Jones. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. McIntyre, thank you. I, I, I know this sounds really odd to people, but I actually look forward to these audit reports every single year. I really do. And, and the reason that is is because of how remarkable the job that Tom Franklin does to manage books, to manage its accounts. And the reports that come back every single year from Allison just, just speaks loads about how efficient our town government runs. I mean, kudos to our treasury and our, and our administration in regards to managing the books and managing the money. It's just, it, I've learned so much sitting in this seat about how budgets and accounts and, and all of this works. And honestly, if it wasn't for this position, I wouldn't know, know all of this. And I think having read these reports many times over now, and having heard such great reviews from Allenson about the way the town of Franklin does their business, um, I just want to I, I just want to thank you for coming in once again and giving again um, such such a great um, statement in regards to the town. And, and I just want to put forth um, to the citizens that um, your dollars are being used wisely, and and and. and I think that Tom can pretty much agree with me, Bobby can agree with me, going back several years now, that we were kind of in a scare when it came to the whole public yeah. Um So now that we're really in this kind of, as you would put it so eloquently, um, great position comparatively to our peers, um, that just makes me so proud. And that just, that just that's, that's a testament to our, to our town and our government and how well it's going. Um, other than that, I just want to thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Councilor Jones, Councilor Frangelo. Yeah, thank you, thanks for the presentation. Uh, I'm interested, uh, um, still learning more about this whole process. Where does infrastructure fall um, within our accounting? Where do our roads mm -hmm. and pipes fall? Uh, I'm not gonna ask, if, if Alicia can, it looks like she's getting something back up on the, um, on, on the screen. Uh, this would be page 13 of the document, Alicia. And, and while she's turning to that, when I when I turned, um, you spoke earlier of your uh, long-term long perspective balance sheet, I went to the side of the equation which includes the liabilities and, and equity, if you will, to talk about pension and OPEP. I skipped over this page, um, but but really this is, of course, the asset side of the equation. And, and towards the bottom of this page, you see uh, so the, the largest, one of the largest numbers there that isn't a total or a subtotal is the other capital assets net of accumulated depreciation of a little over $206 million. That's really where the infrastructure would, would, would be included. It's in, it's in your capital assets. So your roads and other things like that, as well as buildings and what have you, would be included in that $206 million. Great, so it's entirely on our assets side I guess we as a town would see that 
as something that needs to be continued to be funded and maintained at some high cost. Uh, does the accounting sheet uh, consider uh, quality of uh, roads and, and uh, services? Yeah. Um, well, you, you, Franklin, like most gov governments, use a, a traditional uh, capital asset accounting model. Uh, the standards do allow for they call it the modified approach, where you, you, you would have to measure the quality of those assets on a, on a regular basis. Uh, but again, like Franklin, like virtually all of our clients use the traditional model, reporting them at essentially their net book value. Historical cost minus depreciation. Uh, so it's, it is, I pointed these numbers out because that's where the infrastructure assets are, are, are on your financial statements. But it's a little hard just to look at that number and determine the quality of the asset compared to, you know, you know, replacing and what it would cost to replace. That's really not what the model, the generally accepted accounting principles, uh, the, the, the model of it is, is designed to do. One could look, uh, but this is a little bit of a, a, a stretch, but I, I hear this a lot, so I'll, I'll share it with you in, in, in the council, is that um, a lot of times governments will look at their depreciation expense, which I can point to that in, in, in a moment, uh, and they may measure uh, what they're putting in for assets or new assets or new infrastructure compared to the infrastructure that's being depreciated. Is there a little bit of a matching or kind of a replacement of, of, the, of the infrastructure that's being depreciated? That is a way it can be looked at it, um, but it's, it's not the simplest, it's not the simplest model to use. Is it, is it fair to say that this is a statement of our ability to pay future debts in a timely manner more than our ability to continue to provide the quality services that our residents enjoy. I'm sorry, could you just ask that one more time? <coughs> you have to try to answer it. I, I guess the, the, um, the quality of our fiscal health in this sense, we were just talking about you know hundreds of millions of dollars in infrastructure backlog. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's not captured in here. When, when we say that we're, our, our, uh, we're fiscally healthy, it, it's my understanding that that's in, if we take on more debt, we can pay it off in a timely manner. Is that? Uh, yes, I, I think that that's, that's true. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the key footnotes that, that's in your financial statements uh, you know, highlights all of your, your, your long-term debt. And more specifically, it shows you um, when it's going to be paid off. And one of the key attributes that rating agencies and fiscal and, and financial institutions look at is how rapidly you're, you're paying off your, 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 your outstanding bonds. And um, Franklin, I think, I, I don't have the percentage in, in front of me, uh, but I know I looked at it, we looked at it during the, the, the audit. Uh, rating agencies like to see, you know, around between 65 and 70 percent of your long-term debt being paid off over the next 10 years. They recognize it's not all going to be paid off over the next 10 years, but they want to see governments, you know, having between 65 or 70 or potentially higher uh, paid off in the next 10 years. And I'm quite sure that that, that Franklin, you know, fits, your amortization of your long-term debt fits into that model just just fine. Uh, I appreciate it. 
I, I'm very happy, as, as we all are, that, that these continue to come back strong. I just don't want to uh, kid ourselves and say that this means that we're able to uh, continue to fund the services at a sustainable level. I, I'm talking about roads, the infrastructure, but also schools that we continue um, to sort of uh, underfund you know, each year. This is not a quality, this is not a statement on you know, the quality of our ability to uh, you know, reach level services, but rather our ability to pay our bills. I, I agree with that. It's a, it's a snapshot as of a balance sheet date at 63021. In the operating statement, show the operative results for the 12 month period or fiscal period ended June 30, 2021. Thank you. Uh, Jamie? Through you, Mr. Chairman. So, uh, Councilor Fajola, to your, to your point, um, at the end of the day, financial audits, just like all of the other work we do financially, the audit really is a reflection on the fiscal year and how our accounting, our practices, you know, all the way down to ethics questions, a whole variety of stuff is brought forth to validate from an independent third party that the town of Franklin is doing a great job, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, managing its money, reporting, etc. The reason why that's important to your point is not necessarily around our ability to pay or the quality of infrastructure, but what it does is it feeds into the narrative at the ratings agency that Scott's referenced many times, which fully gets back to the importance of managing these things so well that we, we get the best bond rating we can because that end up has the effect on allowing us to have the cash flow and the fiscal strength with investors to be able to make those investments and be able to pay them off with a lot of confidence from the private sector, lending institutions, financialists, blah, 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 blah. And so I, I just want to dis, but I want to make sure the public is at home watching that this isn't really related to taxes or you know, uh, our ability to spend or our ability to pay. Those are, those are points that are a little bit off to the side, indirectly connected. Uh, but I just want to make sure the public understands this is really a review of, of our financial practices, policies, effectiveness. Um, and I think to Scott's point, you know, we've been getting high marks for many, many years. That's what bond rating agencies really want to see. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, thank you. Any other questions? Councilor Cormier Ledger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, just one quick question. Normally, with my nonprofit background, I would see concerns raised in a management letter that would accompany an audit, and I don't see any here. So am I reading it correctly that not only are we in good shape, but to your professional opinion, you're not even finding areas that you feel the town should focus on or that are a, you know, maybe an area that needs some addressing in the future, something like that? That's correct. Uh, standards, standards, pardon me, standards require us to report any significant deficiencies or material weaknesses, and we did not identify any material weaknesses in accordance with our, our audit. That's fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. Councilman Delacall. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Hey, Scott. Uh, just kind of curious, when, do you have any idea when uh, the Norfolk County Retirement will be fully funded? I believe it's 2032. Is that? I thought it was 30. That's why I was wondering. If it's 32 that it will be. Okay. Thank you. Just curious. 
Any other questions or comments from the council? Scott, thank you very much. Uh, we love getting these reports, as Councillor Jones said. Uh, uh, we've been here quite a number of years, and uh, getting these reports on an annual basis really is a tribute to the entire town government. Uh, right down every single department, uh, right up through uh, the council, because we're setting the policies and the department heads uh, running the departments. And it's just one of those occasions where we all should just tap ourselves on the back and say, nice job. Uh, and it goes all the way down to every single department in our town. Scott, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. You too. Okay. Moving on, uh, legislation for action, resolution 22-26, acceptance of easement of property at 732 Washington Street. Clerk will read the resolution. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is 2272, right? 2227. I'm sorry. Uh, did I read the wrong one? Uh -huh. I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, 2227, order of acceptance. Yeah, 2227, sorry. Order of acceptance of Joseph Circle as a public way and related utility and drainage easement. Perfect. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this is resolution 2227, order of acceptance of uh, Joseph Circle as a public way and related utilities and drainage easements. Whereas the General Court enacted <coughs> Chapter 163 of Legislative Acts of 2011. An act providing a simplified procedure for municipal acceptance of subdivision roads in a city known as the Town of Franklin, herein here known as Chapter 163. <clears throat> and whereas Joseph Circle has laid out the constructed road and residential subdivision shown on definitive subdivision plan approved by the Town of Franklin Planning, uh, Planning Board and recorded on Norfolk County Registry of Deeds in Plan Book 407 and Plan Number 419 of 1992. Whereas the town has fully complied with the requirements of Chapter 163 for municipal acceptance of said road, as public way, said compliance includes uh, submittal of written certification of plans by the Town Franklin Planning Board to the Frank Franklin Town Council and the Franklin Town Council's holding a public hearing this date after hearing pr given prior written notice thereof to the owner of the record of each property abutting the road as evidenced by the abutters list, a true copy of which is attached here to as Exhibit A, and notice by newspaper publication. Now, therefore be it ordered, <clears throat> the Town Council of the Town of Franklin determines that it is in the public interest to accept Joseph's, Joseph's Circle, shown in the above reference definitive subdivision plan as, as uh, Currency Street, and also shown on the street acceptance plan entitled Street Layout and Acceptance Plan of Joseph Circle. Prepared by CGC Associates Incorporated, Wilmington, Massachusetts, and dated February 11th of 2022, to be recorded here within herewith as a public way. In accordance with the said determination, the Franklin Town Council hereby accepts the following motion on said street acceptance plan as a public way and fee ownership thereof to Vestal Town. Joseph Circle, for its entire length, together with ownership of the following drain easement, shown in the above reference street acceptance plan, drainage easement, uh, shown as detention basement easement between lots four and five, and along rear lot line of number five and three, the Franklin Town Council directs the true copy of this order 
of acceptance together with the original above reference tree acceptance plan be recorded by the Norfolk County Registry of Deeds within 30 days in accordance with the provisions of Chapter 163. This resolution should become effective according to the provisions of the Town of Franklin Home Charter. Move resolution 22-27. Second. Motion and a second. Discussion. Jamie. Just uh, through Mr. Chairman, the next two uh, resolutions are to accept the streets that we just had a hearing about. All set. Any further discussion? Seeing none, the vote will come on the motion to approve resolution 22-27. A two-thirds majority votes required. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Resolution 22-28, order of acceptance of Susan's Way and a portion of Lawrence Drive as public ways and related utility and drainage easements. Clerk will read the resolution. Motion to waive the reading. Second. Motion to second to waive the reading. All those in favor of waiving the reason, re reading, <coughs> signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Move resolution 22-28. Second. Motion and a second. Discussion. Jamie, anything? Nothing. Counselors? Seeing none, the vote will now come on the motion to approve resolution 22-28. Again, a two-thirds majority votes required. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Bylaw Amendment 22 dash 879 chapter 170 vehicles and traffic appendix a fines parking violations first reading clerk will read the bylaw amendment thank you mr chairman a bylaw amendment to uh code of town of franklin the chapter 170 vehicles and traffic appendix a fines uh, be enacted by the franklin town council at chapter 170 vehicles and traffic appendix a Lines of the Code of Town of Franklin is amended as follows. This has to do with um, parking violations. As noted below, it's going to be restricted prohibited areas, $25. Parking within 10 feet of the hydrant, entrance to a fire station, $50. Obstruction to a driveway, $25. Obstruction of a crosswalk, $25. Obstruction of a sidewalk, $25. All night parking when restricted, $25. Snow removal, $25. Wrong direction, $25. Double parking, $25. Taxi stand, $25. Bus stop, $25. Parking within 20 feet of an intersection, $25. Uh, a posted handicapped parking space is going from $125 to $150. Meter overtime parking is going from $15 to $25. Overtime parking is going from $15 to $35. Post. And improper parking is going from $15 to $25. And unauthorized parking. $50. File amendment shall become effective on and after July 1st of 2022. This is a first reading. Move resolution 22-879 to a second reading. Second. Motion is a second. Discussion. Jamie. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So, uh, as I've outlined, and I'll try to synthesize as uh, quickly and easily as possible, uh, the bylaw, uh, first reading before everybody tonight, uh, if folks are at home, there is a memo. Um, the list is up there. 
but there is a memo uh, in the packet that explains the history of this, um, and that this was largely brought forth um, over the last several years to address some parking issues. Uh, and I'm just focusing right now, by the way, on, on this bylaw, not the next bylaw amendment on the parking zoning map in downtown. That's a different bylaw, and we can talk about that then. Uh, but there's been concerns about uh, scaff laws uh, at times. Uh, we've worked with the residents on West Street for just about four years now. Uh, the DPW and police have done an incredible job uh, trying to attain and define the problem on West Street. Um, and that there are uh, a couple of sections near the college dorm uh, where there is going to be some additional striping. But um, with the, uh, one of the identified issues, uh, is the fact that uh, Dean College does have a fee uh, per semester uh, to park there as a student. Um, and we do know that most students take advantage of that, but they also have friends that come from other places. And, um, and so uh, with a $15 uh, ticket uh, is not necessarily really a disincentive um, to try to uh, not have to pay for parking, park far away, um, and when you can park right across the street illegally and get away with it, um, that seems to be uh, the modus operandi of some folks uh, at, the, uh, at the school. Uh, our staff have worked with Dean for years on this. They have made a lot of improvements. I know many of you on the council are familiar with those. They've changed their parking lot structure. They've asked staff and students to park in different places to alleviate the problem. Our DPW has put in uh, line striping parking spaces up and down East, West, uh, Church, Walnut, and other, uh, Nason, I believe, as well. Um, and so we've been trying to work on this. I think all of you on the council are familiar with the concerns of people on West Street. Um, some of you I know live there. Uh, but uh, in all sincerity, um, you know, for weeks and months of debate, um, the consensus was, um, that we should try to look at increasing uh, the traffic violation penalty to try to disincentivize um, kids from parking legally or other uh, residents, by the way. It's certainly not just the Dean College students. Um, and to take advantage of the free spaces up and down West Street. There's plenty of parking up and down West Street. Um, and so uh, originally we were talking about the numbers and saying, well, geez, if there's $175 a semester fee to park, well, at $50 a violation, maybe that would uh, be three strikes and maybe we would get the kids to park back in the parking lot and avoid these issues. Uh, and as the police department always does, an incredibly thorough job, we went to look in through Lieutenant Riley and Chief Lynch who are here tonight to answer questions and discuss this as well. Um, they went around and did a consensus of almost a dozen towns around us and looked at their ticket books, okay? And, uh, and uh, decided to see what are other towns charging for the same violation. Um, and uh, they presented a report to the EDC uh, a few weeks ago um, with a recommendation, all of which you see here. Um, some fees, some violations stay the same. Some have been increased based on our research. A nominal amount of $10 in almost every category. Uh, obviously the handicapped parking being raised 25 uh, probably isn't raising too many eyebrows, but all the rest of them uh, are fairly uh, are, are fairly reasonable uh, uh, increase or modest increase, I should say, of about ten dollars. With the one exception, as noted in my memo, um, the Economic Development Committee of the Council uh, did vote three to one 
to move this forward as is to the full council. Um, they did amend the overtime parking section on there from $15 to $35. Um, and, uh, and so the proposals before everybody tonight. Uh, happy to obviously answer any questions, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and the Chief of Police and Lieutenant Riley are both here to uh, also answer any questions that the citizens or the council may have. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Councilor Hamlin, uh, since you're the EDC Chair, uh, would you like to speak first? I would like to. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first of all, thank you, Jamie, for that um, concise um, explanation about what happened and we've been talking about these, this for months but first I, I want to thank Chief Lynch and Lieutenant Riley um, they took a list of problems that we gave them <laughs> and they spent tons of time and energy in researching the issue studying the solutions and bringing us this resolution and the next one that, you'll, that, that will be up next to help us solve the problems um, there, there are overtime, overnight parking in a no parking area in multiple areas around town, not just on the east-west street. And so during the discussions about the parking violations, we learned that these fees, have, these fines have not been updated or looked at since 2002. So that means it's been 20 years since, bless you, it's been 20 years since anyone has, um, updated these or looked at them. And I, I, I hope that we can all agree that $15 just doesn't deter anyone. Um, you know, we discussed this list, and with one exception, we agreed to all the fines that Lieutenant Riley has suggested here. And um, the discussion was about the overtime, which was up, which is up to 35. So some people wanted no fine, we have people that wanted 50 or $100 for a fine. Um, and I really think that, that this is a good compromise that we, that we have come up with, and it was our job to go through this and come up with a compromise to recommend to the council tonight. You know, some communities have higher or lower fines depending on where their pain point is. Uh, and I think most of our problems have come from this overstay of the two-hour limit. And so um, I think that's why, that's why I thought we should bump it up a little bit because that has been our pain point. Um, so I want to thank Lieutenant Riley again for his patience and his incredible work and to help us solve these problems. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Councilor Hamlin. Councilor Jones. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, just a note in regards to the, the numbers that are listed here from the lieutenant. The original number was 25 and it was changed to 35 at request of the OBC Council. And it did go through to the one on the $35. Um, I, I, I was the one that was a dissension on the $35 in the sense that I'd like to keep it at the original request of the lieutenant for $25. For the simple fact, uh, well, for two reasons. There's actually two things in regards to this that I'd like to speak to. One is that <clears throat> making these fines, and I understand it's been 20 years since we've, since, since we've addressed this issue, and it's valid that we definitely go forth and address these fines, especially since it's been so long. 
Um, one is, and I agree with the fact that the lieutenant went around to our fellow communities and looked at what an average fine goes for for these types of violations. They are in line, as, as so mentioned, during the EDC meeting. Except my point is that with the $25 is that, yes, these violations have not been addressed in 20 years. But it doesn't mean that just because we haven't addressed them in the past 20 years, that if a violation we approve tonight, we find that it may not be enough to have remedied the issue, then we always have an opportunity to readdress this issue again within a short amount of time. We can always bring this up, and for instance, say next year, if this is not working out as expected, we can always increase it or adjust it as necessary. What I'm getting at is I would hate to put us in a position where we're setting a price too high where we would deter um, pedestrian, tra I'm sorry, um, vehicular traffic from visiting our downtown and visiting our businesses. Um, another thing in regards to the parking is I think two hours, in essence, is, is a really short window of time um, for many people to actually effectively visit the overall amount of businesses that are downtown. Um, I think three hours might be more reasonable. Um, where, for instance, if you go to Gallagher's, if they're busy, or if somebody just wants to hang around for a while, or if somebody wants to, to try to traverse the triangle and go to many of the businesses that are in the triangle, um, that could take close to two hours, if not more than two hours, which would jeopardize the person getting a ticket, not at their own accord, not intentionally, um, that may deter them from visiting the downtown. So it's kind of a kind of a balancing act on both how much the fine should be as well as the amount of time necessary for a person to effectively traverse the downtown. I think three hours would probably be better and I think starting at 25 would be a good deterrent. That's my, that's my opinion. Thank you, Councillor Jones. <coughs> Councillor DeLocco. Thank you. Um, I kind of totally agree with Councillor Jones. Uh, I do think that if we go up with <coughs> on these, we're going to hurt our downtown and that's what we're trying to get back. Um, I think you can go up $1,000 on that. If you don't get Dean off their ass, you're not going to get anything done. That's my personal opinion. Thank you, Councilor DeLarco. Councilor Pellegrini. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, it says over here, meter overtime. Mm -hmm. Is someone coming up here to answer questions? No. No. Well, it says meter overtime. I think if you're over the meter, there are. We have no meters. I'm well aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, geez. You think I missed that one? I, 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 I think if I can, just yeah. leave me, give me a second here. Before people allege the TA doesn't know there's no meter. Uh, so part of this is we have a parking lot behind the bank. With so much parking, it's never filled with anyone. And eventually what we're going to do because of the pandemic, and you know, it's just one of those things where we're at that point where we can entertain this project, is as we stated at the EDC meeting, and as we've talked to the chief, I've already spoken to him and met with his staff a couple of times, we're out looking for a new system to utilize the parking behind Dean Bank. That parking was always 
commuter and merchant parking. It still is. It's in the town bylaw. The town bylaw needs to change. I've got, there are no commuters anymore. Whether that's good news or bad news, whether we'll resuscitate it someday, yeah. I don't know. But I don't see commuting coming back uh, this summer, for example, to the way it was three summers ago. No. We've gotten a lot of inquiries from people that said, well, we want to park there for a week, or I have to go into Boston for a month, or I just want to park there for the day. And right now, the, the, the lot is only set aside for commuters in the morning. And then all afternoon and all weekend long, it is free parking for everybody to enjoy in downtown. Free. But we've gotten so many inquiries, Councilor Pellegri, over why can't I park there for a day? I'm not a commuter. I just da-da-da-da that we have to have the police and the staff go through an extensive process to evaluate whether we are ever going to put meters back in. They're not going to ever look like the old meters where you put in a dime and a quarter and whatnot. But we're going to go back and look at the products of having uh, you know, a sticker-based system, like a dollar a day or, or something of that sort. And so we're, not, we're proposing not to take out the meter over time because at some point in the future it's likely that that will need to be either revised again and updated the terminology, or we may have to leave it in there. So if somebody, if we do come up with a system where someone parks in a space, you know, all day, and then they try to park overnight or whatever, that the police can go offer a ticket uh, to make sure that that uh, that scaffold is held accountable. So that's the reason why we have not, we're not proposing to take out the meter overtime yet, um, despite the fact that uh, there are no meters again in the sidewalks in downtown. I hope that answers the question. It's a good idea to keep it in here, you're saying. Exactly, yes. Okay, and secondly, it says overtime parking. How do we check to see if it's overtime parking? Chief? Right now, it's a two-hour limit, so the officers go by. It starts at some of them are 8 in the morning, 8 to 2. So you go by at 8.10, you go back again at 10.10, car's still there, that's overtime parking. 35 bucks or whatever you guys decide to do. Okay, but I mean if someone is 10 minutes late coming in to check the cars, they may not be overtime parking. We're, we're pretty good, but I'm not no, going to say that we're going to be here good. every two hours on the hours. But if we, get there three, if we get there two hours and 50 minutes later and the car is still there, so be it. If somebody, they beat us. If we get there two hours and 50 minutes from the first check, and they left two hours and 30 minutes, they got us. We weren't able to go there. You know, I mean, we try, and, you know, we'll do the best we can. Um, but that could happen. But if they're there longer, then obviously they are gonna get, they're gonna get the fine. And, and that's what the, uh, the overtime parking is. And Jamie was right, the metered overtime, if we ever put it back, because we're gonna have to have new books made up, and we just kind of talked about how long is that gonna be, depending on what you decide to, you know, eventually, we're going to have to have the books. What are we going to do? We'll have to cross out the old fine and write in the new fine for the time being. Yeah, right. We will be making a bunch of books if we just didn't want to have to do it again if, if we do have a, a, a meter type of system, whatever mm -hmm. it may look like. Oh, I get that. That makes sense. Okay. And I'll set Councilor Council Cormier Ledger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My, my question really comes to the all night parking when restricted, only going up 10 bucks. That, that was a huge issue that came before us with the you know the folks from those streets that were talking about you know cars being where they weren't supposed to be overnight so can 
someone just explained to me the rationale of that only going up ten dollars because that doesn't seem like a deterrent to me. Again, the research. I, I, I don't believe the overtime, and I was confused on this too for a while. So uh, you know, I had to check check it with the chief. Overtime parking, uh, Council of Ledger, is where the violation is that's happening on that street. It's not the all night parking when restricted. It's a different violation. Am I, am I accurate with that, Chief? Yes. Okay. The, and what, and what, and what is the fun? all night parking <laughs> restricted? Right. There isn't any until you vote on this to have the the areas that you're going to right. end up putting it at one time there so, might have been right. but right now there is no overnight parking restrictions oh there's none but, exactly. I know it was, but it was brought to our attention before that the dean students are sometimes go circumventing the system by parking in the same spot overnight right I and mean, I remember that came up from people that live in their neighborhood so this really doesn't at least in my opinion, address that too, too much. If a kid does it, he's gonna get whacked with a $25 fine, which may in fact still be cheaper if, if he gets caught, right? So I am just was just curious, it was the only one out there that I saw that I'm like, it's really not enough of a bump to, you know, if I'm 18, I might, I might risk it, right? But, just, just but that's, but just so everybody's clear, these are town lot. So it's not just that one street, it's not just, every, it, it's town-wide. These bylaws take effect yep. town-wide. So there may be other times where a truck is parked illegally in a no parking zone, you know, there might be other dynamics with that. But as the chief pointed out, there right now currently is no, and the next bylaw address, a proposal addresses this with East, the one strip on East Central Street and Main Street. But right now, there is no overnight parking restrictions in our town code. There may have been years and years and decades ago, I don't know. Um, but that's probably a, a, a fine or a violation that's been in town code. We haven't updated or even looked at these in 20 years. I can't imagine how far back some of these types of violations go back. Um, but we do know that they're consistent across other communities because we did the research and the same categories exist in virtually every town around here. So it's not like we're, these, this verbiage is incorrect. It, it does mean something. It, it does, just my, my next point really, it does sound like it's somewhat of an education issue, right? Because we, we heard that there were employees violating the two hour policy in front of their storefronts as well, where it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, those same employees could park behind the bank, go, walk to their place of business without a problem. After two o'clock? Right. So while we, to Councillor Jones's point earlier, we definitely want to encourage people staying longer than two hours to enjoy the businesses and get a bite to eat, but at the same time, we have an issue with employees parking directly in front and taking some of those prime spots. Three. Okay. Great. <coughs> three, three, Mr. Chair, that's accurate. And that's also the impetus for the bylaw proposal on the next one. Okay. And just quickly, the most common situation the chief would reference is, I have a car parked right outside the front of my business in a two-hour zone. The car has been there for four hours. Can the police come down and do something about this? I want to assure everybody, we're not roaming around, driving up or down, circling around, targeting cars at hours and times. The, the teeth in this really gives the police the ability to deal with egregious situations 
We're not walking around two hours and 10 minutes like the city of Boston, the city of Los Angeles, the city of New York, city of Cambridge. We're not doing that. It's really for the issue that you just brought up, which is I got a car, four hour, five hours, uh, whether it's a, a business owner, a dean college student, an employee, a citizen, uh, a neighbor resident, a visitor. Um, it really just gives them the ability to go down and, and to be able to take it the car. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Council uh, I guess my only my only comment before I go to the audience is uh, I tend to agree with uh, I believe I'm saying this <laughs> Councillor Jones <laughs> and Councillor Delorco uh, and uh, I like the original proposal uh, brought forth. Uh, by uh, Lieutenant Riley uh, with the overtime parking being at $25. But that's, again, that's my opinion, <coughs> my stance where I'd like to see us. So with that, I'll go to the audience. Is there anyone in the audience that would like to speak to this issue, please come forward. <laughs> Name and address, I know you've been sitting there a while. Well, thank you for waiting patiently. Thank you <laughs> all for that. Steve Schulitz out there to help you with that. Lisa Piana, 6 Matthew Drive. I'm the executive director of the Franklin Downtown Partnership, and I appreciate um, everybody's uh, opinion on this. Uh, this is a very important issue for the um, downtown businesses, Franklin Downtown Partnership, but you know, for residents. I mean, our, um, our downtown has six new businesses. Um, I think for those of you that have been downtown recently, you, you see more visitors down there than in many, many years. We have um, a new bookstore, we have a, a new bakery, and so we want to make sure that we continue to have visitors coming down and they're not afraid of getting ticketed. Um, it's for me and from the business, I've had a chance to talk to a few businesses. Obviously, we have a few hundred members, so um, I haven't talked to all of them or I don't represent all of their opinions. But the um, businesses I spoke to, um, they really brought up the town parking lots and I know Jamie has said you know after two o'clock you can park in the depot parking lot and I've also heard you can park in the uh, West Street parking lot but um, there's no signs I was just down there because I thought everyone's telling you know a lot of the business have been saying I don't know where this free parking is so I'm not sure who have mentioned it but it, it is an education problem I think and one that can be fixed pretty quickly. I mean, we can, you know, get some new signs up. I think that can happen pretty quickly. <coughs> and I also, um, Glenn, I agree with you, um, like two hours isn't enough anymore. We have so many great businesses downtown. And uh, I, was, I was there just uh, last week with my daughter and we took the whole afternoon. And we spent over an hour in the bakery and then we went to the bookstore. And by then, we were running back, you know, my daughter's running back to move her car we didn't even get to the olive oil shop or the uh, gift store. So again, just something to think about. Um, I think basically um, 
three suggestions, better signage, um, education, and um, really looking at those lots because I was just down there and uh, you're right, Jamie, there's no commuters down there. I mean, I, today was you know, an average day, I guess, and I saw probably about 24, 25 um, open spaces down in the depot lot, and I saw, um, I don't know, probably like 10 or 12 in the uh, Ferreras uh, West lot. So if those could be, um, whether it's free parking or you know, even a nominal fee for, um, people to park when they come to downtown for more than um, two hours, then I think then that allows people to have a choice. So, okay, I'm going to be here for longer, let me go park in one of those lots instead of just you know spending an hour at one of the businesses. Um, but I also wanted to invite everyone who wants to talk about parking to um, the general meeting uh, June 2nd, Franklin Downtown Partnership, we'll have that on the agenda. And we'd love to, you know, have a chance for our members to talk about a lot of their ideas. Um, just, you know, I, I talked to probably about seven or eight downtown businesses, and they had some great ideas about um, just, you know, parking and parking in general and different suggestions. I think one of the one of the questions that just kept coming up is combining the West Street issues with um, issues in the downtown center. Can we look at those separately? Can we talk about fines differently? Because they're very different. And uh, and we just don't want one dictating the other, just like I don't think the West Street people really want the downtown area to be dictating what's going on at West Street. They have um, their other issues. So hopefully that, uh, you know, we can get together, um, have some more discussion on this in the future. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Is there anyone else in the audience, please? Uh, just name and address, please, Gary. Uh, Gary McIntosh, 24 East Street. And I agree with um, what, what she had just said. Originally, what the problem was, it was the West Street, East Street, Mason, Church Ave, etc. And then what we ended up doing was combining it with the downtown Franklin parking. <coughs> I mean, there's two, there's two different set of issues. And I understand that the businesses, you don't want to have somebody get ticketed when they're coming in to, to shop in your in your store. But that's different than the residential parking on East and West Street. And I'm not sure if we can decouple that. I think that may be worth a thought. And I don't wanna, and I'm not saying for tonight because, you know, <laughs> it's getting late to say the least, but I'm not sure $25 is gonna fix the problem with the Dean kids. Because I just did another quick calculation. They're gonna have to get 14 tickets to match what it would cost them to park on the Dean parking lot. And I don't think that's going to be enough of a disincentive for them to do that. But that's, that's just my opinion. On the survey that Lieutenant did and, and the Chief was involved with, did a great job. One, one different dynamic that Franklin has than any other surrounding town, we have a downtown college and we have a downtown MBTA station. Now the MBTA is not an issue right now, but we have a downtown college which none of the surrounding communities have. So that's an additional pressure on our on our side street, so I I would like to see the thirty five dollars stay for the residential area, and I can see why the downtown area might not want that. And I think it's two separate issues. But anyway, thank you for your time. Thank you. Uh, please come forward. Name and address, please. Uh, April Rock, and I'm representing Twelve Main Street, a new business. Um, as Lisa said, the two-hour minimum, 
while right now, as we haven't started any of our programs, it's not a problem, but as I have 20 or 30 kids coming in for a story time in the morning, the lack of parking for the morning um, is an issue, but also only uh, providing two hours. If they want to go to breakfast, which a lot of parents do, they want to go to breakfast, they want to come to story time, they want to go to um, different stores while they're there, two hours is not going to be enough time. So that is, as a new business owner, new to Massachusetts and everything, that seems to be a really short period of time. Um, the parking issue, I would only say if we could open up Dean in the mornings, um, we could have more activities happening in the morning as well, not just in the afternoon. Because if I had to have a bunch of parking people coming in for an event, author event, story times, whatever, they would have to wait until the afternoon for enough parking <coughs> to help that. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Is there anyone else in the audience that would? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Stephen Pacini, here on behalf of Pacini Shoe Store, 22 Main Street, downtown. Um, merchant, longtime member of the Franklin Downtown Partnership. And really, I don't really have a lot more to add. Um, Lisa did a great job expressing the views of the, of the merchants. And I think, you know, it's really just a matter of reasonableness. I think it's, um, with parking being at such a premium, there's always been that balance between discouraging the long-term parking, but yet encouraging the turnover, which is you know, obviously good for, for anyone utilizing downtown. So what might be initially a, um, an attempt to deter um, parking, or long-term or overtime parking, might in effect be viewed as punitive, and a you know, penalty to people. And I th just think um, you know, coming out of the pandemic and with the you know, encouragement of presence of the new, new businesses, the new cafe and, and uh, the bookshop, that it might really just be sending the wrong message at mm -hmm. this time if we increase the, the overtime parking, you know, fine. So that would be my view and I appreciate your consideration. And also, just want to mention if Mrs. DiMartino is still watching, congratulations <laughs> for some days <laughs> of our classmates, uh, 1978 graduates of Franklin High School, a long time ago, but, um, um, you know, happy belated 100th birthday, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, I'm Scott Martin from Arlington Street. I also volunteer my time as president of the Franklin Downtown Partnership. I came to Franklin in 2012 and I owned a business on Main Street. So I've been a business owner on Main Street, I've been involved in the town. Um, I'm encouraged by some of the discussion I'm hearing today about potentially a three-hour time limit because I do think of, with the variety of mix that we brought downtown, um, the two hours is really not enough time to do more than one activity. I think the kind of things that we have that are starting to make downtown unique and put it on an upswing, you have a bookstore that's going to have an art gallery inside. You've got a coin and collectible <coughs> shop. You've got a comic book shop. You've got two coffee shops. These things 
uh, just by themselves that have owner operators willing to meet you, talk to you, get to know you, and engage you in conversation. It's relationship and not transactional. And I think when you do those kind of visits, meet those kind of owners, and then you want to stop and walk over to the Rome or Teddy Galleries and have a meal and a few drinks afterwards, mm -hmm. two hours just really doesn't seem time to enjoy all of that. Plus, we have a ladybug trail coming. That's going to encourage people to park their car and walk to all these different kind of shops. So I really think that potentially a three-hour you know, three window is much more conducive. And I do think that parking, getting parking available before 2 p.m. would certainly help with that crunch and trying to find that. Good news is that if we have a, maybe a communication gap, I know the resources, resources of the Franklin Downtown Partnership, we would use that um, along with some approved signage. But we'd use our resources to help get the word out. So, just want to help you, can, you know, ho I'm hopeful that you're considering those points and, and I do understand on East and West Street um, the, the need to make sure those residents are getting what they need, but it's interesting, I would agree with Mr. Pizzini that I don't know if a $25 fine would necessarily change an 18, 19, 20 year old's opinion, but if I go shopping and spend a couple hundred dollars in a few of these spots and I walk out and I get a $25 <coughs> extra tax on my car, it might, uh, it might discourage me from doing that experience again. Thank you. Thank you. One last item, Eileen Mason, I'm on Beaver Street in Franklin, and in dealing with bringing a lot of businesses downtown over the last 10 years or more, um, one of the big complaints is there's not enough parking. There's not enough convenient parking, and it's not only just for their customers to have an easy walk to their shop, which we're getting a lot of new shops now, which is great, but it's their employees, where do they park? Um, I constantly see that on even Cottage Street, Caesar's Barbershop, the pizza shop. They have a lot of employees, there's other small businesses there. There's very little room for their clients, their customers, to come in and park. So one of my thoughts has always been, why can't we take some of those spots that are at the West Central Ferraris Market lot that we lease as a town and make those available to the downtown business owners for their employees to go park there instead of it being commuter parking. And then whatever else is left over in that lot is retail parking for the day. Get rid of the two hours, get rid of the three hours, whatever that is, it's gonna be you know good, dedicated. Similar to the Depot Street area, make some of it available to like employees. The bank, what, Dean Bank bought a lot of land, took the building down and made their own parking lot because they needed parking. All those other businesses around there need that same kind of parking. So there's fines being proposed here, but there's not a parking plan that we can all see and agree and maybe answer some of these big questions. So we're kind of hoping that hold off on setting up these fines and sending them out until everybody's had discussions on what to do with parking because I know as a partnership we've been asking for help with this for 20 years and it's time so that's all I have to say thank you thank you is there anyone else hi I'm Jane Curran um, 18 Park Road as you know one of the uh, founders of the Franklin Downtown Partnership and a former business owner in downtown. Um, I've talked to many of you and thank you for listening to me and I agree with what everybody has said. But the one, one point about the gentleman from um, East Street, um, not combining the downtown issue with his street. And 
So I'm wondering about the other side streets. What about Emmons Street and Dean Ave? And since I live up on Park Road, are those streets also going to get these kinds of fines? I haven't heard about that. Is it, is it every feeder off of this area? Um, so basically, the, the two-hour thing is really the problem, I think. I think raising them somewhat is a good idea, but two hours is not enough to shop downtown. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else in the council chambers? Is there anyone on Zoom that would like to speak on this? Uh, Roberta Trahan, please. Hi, good evening. Roberta Trahan, 1 Green Street in Franklin, also a member of the Downtown Partnership. I've agreed with everything that these speakers have said. I thank the council and especially the EDC for the work they have done. I would like to stress one additional point, and that is education. People just simply don't know where they're supposed to park. There's been a discussion of having a map that perhaps we could put up on the partnership website, but we really need signage. So whatever the decision is, let's try to educate the public. But I also agree that we probably need a little bit more discussion on this before you vote in these fines. Thank you very much, as always, for your time. Thank you. Jamie? Through you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I just want to make a couple quick points. Uh, number one, there are in town code 24 spaces that are dedicated towards merchant parking. They are clearly signed. I've gone out and looked at them. The sign's right there in the spaces. And correct me if I'm wrong, Chief, two years have gone by and we've not sold one space to a merchant. And right. Lieutenant Riley and the chief are saying, for two years, those 24 spaces, no takers. And I understand that and for people that, that but, but, but in all fairness, in all fairness, I got here in 2016 and early 16, and the town bylaw was changed based off advocacy for more merchant parking. And the remaining spaces were for commuters. Because there was a balance that had to be made, and many of you that were here at that time, Marshall, <coughs> Lorco, Jones, Plank, you know, we knew the debate was 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 heavy about who gets what. Um, and number two, I would just say we've had a parking map for downtown. It's not. I'm not going to try to make it and pitch it as the most sellable, uh, best promotional material that's ever come out before. But we included it in the packet. We, I know the partnership has sent it out to folks. And I, I just don't think those are necessarily the issues that we're dealing with. There is merchant parking in downtown Franklin dedicated for merchants, and we don't have takers. Um, I'm assuming that as of now, part of that is because you know, the COVID pandemic, you know, people split up or whatever. And I understand the rate is higher than it probably should be for today's marketplace. But at the time, the discussion from the council was very fragmented and a difficult one on, well, how do you charge a commuter $180 a quarter and give a discount to a business or charge a business more than a commuter? And so the council unanimously made a decision to say we're going to charge the same rate for everybody. Um, and so I think part of it might be education. And I was just out west. And uh, I happened to be in a downtown, which I didn't know. And there is signage pointing you on Dean Bank that says parking this way. <laughs> there is a sign right there. The one word missing from that sign, and I've already asked Brutus to change it, 
is putting the word free above parking. Now that's not entirely accurate because it's not free yet because we have in town code that law is for commuters and for uh, merchants, uh, which we do intend to look at. But I also worry about the times of do we, are we gonna do free parking? Can we afford to do free parking? Or do we charge for an all day, a dollar for a whole day, and what's the cost of that? So we have some challenging decisions to make moving forward. We have some challenging policy discussions out there. But while I have the mic, if there is a merchant out there that does want a dedicated space, uh, we have 24 available. Uh, they're open right now. Uh, and let us know if someone needs one because we do have space and dedicated for merchants. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Councilor Frangillo. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I, I think when we first heard all the parking things, the, we, we heard there, there were three different uh, attack points. Signage, policies, and penalties. And each of those needed to be addressed. Especially, I would even put it in that order. You know, especially signage. Adjusting policies where and when you can park, especially in those lots. But then there was this real piece, which is the only piece that we're talking about today, that you know the fines are just too low. Where you know, regardless of the policies uh, and the signs that we put out, um, if, if we don't have penalties that uh, change behavior, then everything we do doesn't matter. And that's what that's what today's conversation um, is about, and, and why we put forward, and why I, I would even echo Councillor. Letters concern about whether 25 is enough to deter uh, overnight. Um, as we talk about uh, policies, I think we just we keep hearing from from everyone those lots that we have. Like we have enough parking spaces, we're just not moving the cars to the right places, and a lot of that comes down to opening up uh, those lots um, because what we're talking about here is on-street parking in front. And that's, those are the pieces that we want more rapid turnover. So if you just stop in and buy a coffee, you don't want to be driving around and, and park up and down the, uh, the street. You want the, the one right in front, and so we need turnover there. That's why we have a penalty, and that's why we have the two hour there. And if you want to stay longer, then you can go and, and park you know, off-site, where most of the businesses already do have their own parking. We have town lots that are available uh, free all weekends uh, as well. This, this is, we're only talking Monday to Friday and free all uh, afternoon um, and, and evening. So I, I do think that there still is a need to have the turnover on the, um, the, the main streets, and I do think that there is a need to turn over, uh, to increase penalties to make sure that we're accurately uh, changing behavior. I, Strongly echo the need for updated signage and questions. Thank you, Councilor Fungillo. Uh, was there anybody else? Uh, did you you started to in the back? No. Okay. You weren't coming. Okay. And there's nobody else on Zoom. So uh, I guess. As I look around the council uh, here and listening to what's been said by many people, I'm not sure we're ready to make these decisions uh, right now. I think more information needs to be gathered as well as looking at the entire picture. Uh, 
I think a lot of good information has come forward this evening, and I think we need to go back and compile that information because mm -hmm. I think if we try and vote this, even moving it to a second reading, uh, I just don't think there's enough time to make the adjustments that I think uh, need to be made to uh, get a positive vote from the, from the entire council. So I think. Uh, Bobby made the motion. I need to make sure we say it. You didn't make it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, it, unless there's other committee members that feel different. <clears throat> you can absolutely. <laughs> I'm concerned about pushing it off too long. Um, you know, there well, are. I'm not looking. What I what I was looking at, there was there's a meeting plan with the downtown partnership on June second. Yeah. Uh, and they've invited the council as well as our administrator. Jamie, I know, was planning to meet with them. I, I, I was. I just The June 2nd date is tough because there's a YMCA event at Gillette Stadium, and I think a lot of people from the town are going to be there, including myself. And I just, it's tough. I mean, I make every downtown partnership meeting. I've probably only missed one or two in my career here. It's just a tough day where there's too much going on. Mr. Chairman, could we possibly uh, hang on one second? Hang on one second. The Franklin Downtown Partnership would be willing to set up a special meeting outside right. on June 6th, uh, excuse me, on June 2nd, I, I to, to, to bring so around table. I guess uh, to your point, Councilor Frangillo, I'm not looking to push this off uh, beyond, you know, I'd love to see it come back in June, you know, uh, if, if possible. So you have the option of either tabling it generally or to table it to a date and time, sir? Right, I understand that. So. Uh, let's try. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Chairman, I withdraw my motion to move bylaw amendment 22 879 to a second reading. Thank you. Mr. And I'll, I'll, second. I'll second that. I second. I second. Withdraw. 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 Second. Second withdrawn. Yeah. That's all you need. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay. Uh, Mr. Chairman. Go ahead. I would like to make a motion to move bylaw amendment, I'm sorry, to table bylaw amendment 22879 to a date scheduled for our, our I'll say our second available town council meeting. Uh, actually, is, is one meeting in June or two meetings? Two meetings in June. Uh, to our second uh, scheduled date for town council meeting in June. June 22nd. 22nd. June 22nd. Second. Motion in the second. Discussion on the motion. Yes. Mr. Chairman, would it be possible to put into the language that there be a formal subcommittee that addresses this issue since it's already been to EDC and since we have volunteers from uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure a subcommittee is necessary. I think it could go back through EDC again. Okay. Uh, and uh, they could work. Uh, as well with the uh, downtown partnership. I'm just recommending some a little more formality yeah, to the process. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, understood. Any other discussion? Seeing that the vote will come on the motion to table bylaw uh, bylaw amendment 22 
22-879 to June 22nd. All those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Okay. Uh, <coughs> bylaw amendment 22-880, Chapter 70, Vehicles and Traffic, Article 4, Stopping, Standing, and Parking, uh, Subsection 170-15, Parking Prohibitions and Limitations, D, Parking Prohibited, Downtown Parking Map, First Reading. Clerk will read the bylaw amendment. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is bylaw amendment 22880, Chapter 170, Vehicles and Traffic. This is a bylaw to amend the Code of Town of Franklin at Chapter 170, Vehicles and Traffic at Article 4, Stopping, Standing, and Parking, Subsection 170-15, Parking Prohibitions and Limitations, D, Parking Prohibited, be enacted by the Franklin Town Council at Chapter 170, Code of Town of Franklin. Uh, vehicles and Traffic, Article 4, Stopping, Standing, and Parking, Subsection 170-15. Parking pro Prohibitions and Limitations D, Parking Prohibited, is hereby amended as follows. Subsection 170-15, Parking Prohibitions and Limitations. No person shall stand or park any vehicle at any time upon streets or parts thereof where such a prohibition is posted. At bus stops, except buses, and no person shall park a bus within a business district at any place other than a bus stop where a nearby bus stop is available. See it at taxi cab stands, except taxi cabs, and no person shall park a taxi cab upon any street within a business district or any place other than taxi cab stands. Stands designated for use of the taxi cab and taxi cabs, except while engaged or while waiting for the opportunity to use the taxi cab stand designated for the use. Uh, D, parking prohibited. Downtown Parking District boundaries are those contained on map captioned Downtown Parking District prepared by the Town of Franklin Engineering Department dated July 13, 2016 and revised through the effective dates of this legislation. Original to which is on the file at Town Clerk and the copy of which is appended here to is attachment number one. Prohibitions and limitations on streets contained within the district are shown on said map. This bylaw amendment shall become effective on and after July 1st of 2022. And this map currently on file with the town clerk as mostly revised, see, recently revised, shall remain in effect until July 1st of 2022. Move. Table, I think. Table? No. Table? No. 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 Dash eight eight zero to a second reading. Second. Motion and second. Discussion now, James. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So this is just so folks understand, completely mutually exclusive of the issue that was just brought up a moment ago. In fact, the people who brought these issues to our attention are completely mutually exclusive to one another as well. Um, and so the proposal before everybody tonight, to Council Fragilla's point earlier. That there were these issues raised, and we charge our Councilor Hammond's point, excuse me, and, and we charged the police department with looking at the solutions and trying to be minimalist about it because we know these are important issues. And we're just trying to solve small problems uh, that and just try to tweak them. So, if folks look up at the map here, they will notice that um, there's a purple section right here on East Central Street, and right here on Main Street, and then right on Depot, that little piece right there. So this is kind of what you consider, I think, mostly your like Main Street business corridor that I think the Downtown Partnership and others have been referencing uh, over the last hour or so. 
if you notice, that parking district is commensurate with the rest of all the other purple. You'll go up here at the legend, two-hour parking from 8 to 2, Monday through Friday. The proposed section over here changes and adds a new category, which is in orange, which is two-hour from 8 to 10 parking, Monday through Friday, no overnight. Why are we here doing this? We've heard numerous complaints from folks, particularly on East Central, okay, about the lack of rotation uh, of, of, of cars coming around because most of the businesses on those strips, um, yes, you may do a walk if you're gonna walk around downtown as portrayed by the partnership earlier. These probably aren't your spaces. Um, these are probably for more people dropping people off at, uh, at, at school over here or joining over and going to the, uh, a shop really quick or maybe picking up a pair of shoes um, and then down here grabbing a cup of coffee or coffee up here, whatever the dynamics are. And we've heard a lot of frustration for many years about the rotation of cars. And also we've heard a lot of frustration recently about overnight parking, particularly on East Central Street, where on, particularly on, you know, on a Friday or a Thursday, if they can get away with it, somebody's gonna put their car, dump it right in front of Hang Tai, Birchwood, McGurrow House, any of these businesses, and basically just put the car there for three days. You can even go down and watch people pull out backpacks, <laughs> you know, or bags and walk down another area of, of Alpine Row or another road in downtown. And it's just a very convenient place for people to, to, to stash the car. We've faced a lot of challenges with this too because of the aforementioned issues of two hours. What are we trying to encourage? And so really what we've come up with, with is a modest tweak of a policy to add really, the only thing that's getting added here really is Monday through Friday, you're adding a new district where the two hour parking is extended to 10 p.m. And then you're adding the no overnight on the weekdays so that people cannot park their cars there all week or overnight. And, and then in the morning, all the space, you know, their, their cars are still there. So, um, that's really the, it in a nutshell. This is a very modest proposal of only eight hours extra of the two hour parking Monday through Friday with no overnight. Um, certainly I, I don't pretend that this, is, that this is going to solve every problem and it's perfect. Um, and it certainly uh, is tweakable if other folks have ideas. Um, but this is the place to start. And EDC uh, did uh, have a meeting about this and this proposal, proposal uh, was unanimously endorsed for nothing to move to the I'm sure there'll be questions and happy to answer them. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Councilor Hamlin, anything? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Jamie described everything perfectly. Um, we all agreed that um, no overnight parking would really help this, this serious issue. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Councilor Hamlin. Any other councilors? Councilor Jones? Mm -hmm. Mr. Chairman, based on the discussions, I I, I do think that the yellow zone in particular, the one at the Northern Eye Parking, has been added to, um, that we do consider reflection on changing the two hours in and the three hours in. Or at maximum, I, I should say. Through Mr. Chair, I mean, I think, I think, um, I mean, it's really a question of policy for the council. I think those are your two strips that I'm, I'm guessing, but others may have ideas that you want people rotating. And, and I just, I know it's not optimum for everybody from 8 to eight to noon, but the lot back here, it's, there's just plenty of parking if somebody wants to stay for five hours. Yeah. 
it just is. And the Ferrara's lot is the same thing. All afternoon, all night, people want to go walk around downtown, grab a bite to eat, go shopping for a little bit, do a circle, get a walk in, you know, go to the common, come back. I mean, you could park there pretty long in those parts. So I think the three-hour part is, a, is an interesting idea. I think it, the chief and, and Lieutenant Riley are taking notes, and we'll <coughs> consider these ideas as we go through the rest of the lot. But certainly, it's obviously up for community discussion and happy to entertain any ideas folks have. You still have to come Again, it's just my thoughts in regards to trying to allow at least a reasonable amount of time. Many of the businesses that are being frequented fall within the yellow zone that's proposed on this, on this map. And I understand the rotation. I get that. We want to deter um, too long a period of time of the spaces that are immediately in front of the businesses, just a simple point of turnaround, but we also want to promote, you know, people visiting the businesses. I think, and this is, this is in line a lot with what they mentioned tonight in regards to education and signage, um, that we just, we definitely need to make these things as clear and educated as possible. Thank you, Councilor Jones. Any other counselors? Is there anyone in the audience? Yeah. Name and address, please. Mike Rock, 12 Main Street, business owner. Um, respectfully, um, the signage is completely insufficient for casual passerby. Okay? And uh, I'll say that about 70% give or take, of our foot traffic is between 11 and 2. Okay. So I want to ask you just to consider that, you know, it's easy to say, well, mornings they can find someplace else. Anecdotal, repeat, multiple times a week, we have people talking to us about there's no place to park. So you may feel like the signage is adequate. My position is for people who are casually coming downtown, it is not. So. I'd also suggest, I'd also ask, why is this restriction only Monday through Friday when we do over 50% of our business on weekends? I think it was the, uh, to answer that question to you, Mr. Chair, it was just a simple starting point. Um, I can't say, this is also a big step for the town to do no overnight parking, and we probably will get more requests <laughs> for overnight, no overnight. And at some point we have to kinda, you can't just prohibit no overnight everywhere so we're just kind of taking a cautious uh, just like a, a, a smaller step toward the overnight concept um, but if the council or others feel differently we can certainly add no overnight parking to the areas or on other days I mean certainly nothing that prohibits that I would just ask to get the opinion of the police to see if they would uh, support some you know suggestion like that sure um, and, and my last I would like to also confirm though that I understand turn is, is important but I'll also say that as, as a business owner, um, it is important that, that, that people be able to get in there. Um, three hours, honestly, gives, does give people a chance to frequent one of our restaurants and at least a couple stores. And you have to have both to pull people into downtown, okay? Thank you. Any other? Uh, Lisa. Lisa. Um, Lisa Piana, uh, 
Six Matthew Drive, uh, Franklin Downtown Partnership. Um, so just going back, um, just going back to, it, it's really hard to, I, I think this is part of the whole discussion. So again, I think from the Franklin Downtown Partnership's view is, let's have this discussion and, and include this and include what we just discussed with, with the first piece of it. Um, because I think what you're hearing from a lot of the business owners is, and residents too, I mean I've talked to a lot of residents about this, and, and they, they want more time for the parking. I don't think overnight parking, it, I don't think anybody, we've wanted, we, we've wanted uh, no overnight parking for a while because we know a lot of the students and, um, are, are parking overnight and what's happening is in the morning they're already parked there in front of the bakery, right? So bakery opens at you know a certain, at seven or eight, and there's parking spots already taken. So so there shouldn't be overnight parking. I mean why? I mean there just really shouldn't be. But um, as far as um, looking at these specific areas, I think that's part of the bigger discussion on whether you know two hours or three hours. Um, so I, I would just say it's it's continued in. in in discussion with, with the overall. And so it's just so hard to separate, you know, parking, uh, the downtown parking lots is one discussion, and this is another, it's, it's all one. It's all about parking, and it's all about solutions, right. and it's all about signage, and it's all about education. You, you can't kind of separate that. It's one big discussion, and I think there's a lot of really great ideas from people that aren't in this meeting today that I talked to, so I'd love for you guys to hear those um, ideas as well. Thank you for your time. Jamie. Uh, I, I don't think the three-hour parking is certainly not an issue. I, I don't know if people necessarily are opposed to it. This is great feedback. I think the question is for everybody, where do you want the three-hour parking? Um, do you want it in front of Teddy Gallagher's where someone goes in and, and goes in and eats and has a gathering for three hours and then doesn't shop anywhere else? Um, you know, there's a parking lot 150 feet from that where they can park Again, I'm sorry, all afternoon. I also, secondly, um, you know, I understand the 11 to 2, uh, and I agree with that. The only thing I would say is that's part of the process that Lisa just brought up and others of why we need to look at the town bylaw about the, what we had was commuter lots. And so obviously, as I mentioned earlier, that has to get addressed, and maybe the hours can get addressed in that situation. But, uh, the question is, is where does the council or others want three-hour parking everywhere? or in certain locations. Certain locations. Thank you. Is there anyone else in the audience? Anyone on the council? Council Frontier. I would just again say, like, we, we know that there are, are lots of different pieces. We also know that we have an issue that we can solve right now. It was true with penalties, and it's true with this. Um, I, 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 I still think that uh, signage is the most important. Policy changes is the, is the second most important. But does what you know? Are the fact that that's not on the table right now doesn't mean that we can't solve the problem, which is no overnight parking. Right. Any other? Councilor Hamlin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I would just like to say that I agree with Councilor Frangillo that we could actually solve this issue today about no overnight parking. And um, I think that these will go into effect on July 1st, 2022. <coughs> Correct, Jamie? 
So um, it still gives us time to, to talk to people and to educate people about this. And it, it, I know it's everybody thinks about it as parking is this huge issue, but legislatively, we have to do this one piece at a time. And so um, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to fix the big picture by these um, feet fines and um, policy changes. And we all agree that signage is um, one of the big things that we've, we've been talking about. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Councilor. Seeing no further discussion, everybody understand that this, all this is, is the first reading. So this is being moved from the first reading. It will then go to a second reading. So uh, seeing no further discussion, the vote will come on the motion to move bylaw amendment 22-880 to a second reading, and it's a majority vote. So all those in favor, signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? No, uh, yeah, I, I oppose that. Motion carries. Resolution 22-29, gift acceptance, fire department, $275, veterans services department, $100. Clerk will read the resolution. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is Resolution 2229, Acceptance of Gift, Fire Department and Veteran Services. Whereas the Fire Department and Veteran Services Department have received a generous donation in the total amount of $375 to be used. At the discretion of each respective department is followed. Donation summary, Fire Department, $275. Gift receipts received in memory of Joseph Masui and Veronica Septim Domingo to be applied towards the purchase of safety and other related equipment and support various fire department programs. Veteran Services Department, $100, gifts to be applied towards the Veterans Municipal Assistance Fund. Please see the attached memo dated April 29th, 2022 for donor information. Now therefore be resolved that the Town Council Town of Franklin on behalf of the Fire Department and Veteran Services Department gratefully accepts this, these generous donations to be used at the discretion of the respective department as described above. The resolution shall become effective according to the provisions of the Town of Franklin will occur. Move resolution 22-49. Second. Motion and second. Discussion. Thank everybody for their generous contributions. Absolutely. Thank you uh, for these contributions. Seeing no further discussion from the council, all those in favor of resolution 22-29 signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Town Administrator's Report, Davis Thayer Update. Through you, Mr. Chairman, before the Davis Thayer Update, I uh, just want to make sure everybody uh, is aware uh, the town budget uh, was put out two weeks ago. Um, and uh, it is online. People should go to franklinma.gov um, and check out town budget. Um, it's right there, and hopefully people can lead right to the FY23 budget. All the materials are there for the entire budget which is my shameless plug uh, for the Finance Committee budget hearings uh, begin on May 9th. Uh, May 9th will be general government. Uh, May 11th will be public safety and DPW. And May 12th will be the schools. 
And I also know that the superintendent, uh, Superintendent McGuire, will be here from Tri-County. We've invited over the Aggie as well uh, to participate uh, in those hearings. So May 9th, May 11th, and May 12th, uh, my, well, I will be here all night next week. Maybe I'll have a overnight party. Uh, but um, but uh, those hearings are next week. And then on uh, regarding Davis Thayer, I put it on as an agenda item so there could be a discussion if folks had questions. Um, I know this has taken a little while longer uh, than folks uh, may realize, and I'm, uh, I'm going to break the news. It might be a little while longer. Uh, the main reason is, is there is a regulation at the Mass School Building Authority, the MSBA, where if you close a school within 10 years, um, you have to report it to the MSBA because if you ever contemplate building another school in the future within a certain time frame, um, you can actually be penalized. And that is critically important because from a financing standpoint at the state level, it really does take away uh, situations in the past where towns have tried to uh, shed old school buildings and then turn around two more years later and file for a 50% reimbursement, 60% reimbursement on a school project. So in the best interest of actually the taxpayers, the MSBA does have this rule. Uh, Mike D'Angelo, the superintendent, and myself have all been trying to get in touch with the MSBA for uh, a while. Uh, and the good news is, is after four or five months of outreach, uh, we did have a meeting with them uh, about a month ago. Uh, it was a very productive meeting. They are now, uh, they now understand and they have all the documentation as to why the school, uh, the school committee decided to close uh, the building. Um, the only bit of that, that is huge progress. And for those that have dealt with the MSBA before, um, I, I hope I have your support and that that is huge progress. The one downside to this discussion is I got a follow-up email, the superintendent and I got a follow-up email today at 1.30 from the MSBA laying out the rules of the road. And unfortunately, the one caveat we have to wait uh, is that by their regulations, we have to wait six more months. The school committee will have to wait six more months to dispose of or, or declare the property as surplus to ensure that the town doesn't get penalized in the next decade if there was, for some reason, another proposal for another school. I've talked to the superintendent today uh, about that. Uh, and the one other note I would add is I did get the okay from her uh, and the new incoming superintendent um, to see if we can continue to honor that commitment to many of the citizens that wanted to go into the building uh, for, uh, for nostalgia purposes and to look around. Um, some of the rooms still have to be cordoned off because we're storing the PPE there and there still is school furniture that's being uh, discussed about whether or not those needs are needed or not. Uh, and so we will wait uh, and probably anticipating in the fall is when I would hope that the school committee might uh, consider uh, uh, declaring, excuse me, uh, declaring uh, Davis there as surplus property. So. Uh, unfortunately, we have to wait six more months, but in the interim, we are going to work on a date to try to have a community event for people that uh, went to school there and others that want to go inside and look around uh, and to try to be able to have a, a memorial event to be able to go into the school. So uh, that's my update. I'll be happy to Thank answer you. any questions. Thank you, Jamie. Any questions? I. Councilor Philander. Very unhappy with that. Yeah. 
that you just said <clears throat> makes no sense because why wasn't this said six months ago? Yes, We've been yeah. talking about closing the school yeah, for yeah. how long? Yeah. <clears throat> it's it's an answer. Yeah. It, to be honest with you, none of us in this room, nor Mark, <coughs> pretty smart guy, been around this stuff. You've done this for a long time. I've built schools in other communities. Sometimes there are obscure rules that you don't really know of, and that's why you do your due diligence to check with the MSBA to make sure you don't put yourself in the short term and the long term, make sure you get yourself into a, a dinner. I will also admit, it's taken us a while to get in touch with them. They're still working, they were working remotely. Most of them mm -hmm. still are. They're not back at Ashburton. <coughs> and um, they're not the easiest state agency yeah. to get in touch with. It's just, it's just the truth. And so it's taken us a while, uh, and it's unfortunate. Uh, but the good news is, is now we have clarity. We have the email on record. Um, we have the ruling from the MSBA. And now it's, our, it's, it's really our job to really implement what the MSBA has asked us to do. So um, I, I should also say one last quick thing, Mr. Chairman. The future use, it's on the goals for the council, for those interested in Davis there. It's a, it's a goal. Ultimately, the future of that school is going to have to be decided by some sort of committee to look at the entire mm -hmm. parcel of land, the condition of the building, the potential uses. We all have heard rumors. We've all heard many false rumors. We all mm -hmm. have ideas that won't work. We have ideas that may work. There's going to have to be a very uh, extensive process on the reuse of that school. There will be ample time for public comment, public decision, and input on the future of Davis there. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And certainly, any rumor or any statement that anybody has heard is clearly a rumor. Right. Because there you. is nothing uh, <laughs> in the books. And having been probably the only one in this room that has had more dealings with the MSBA is probably marked than I have. Uh, I concur with Jamie. Uh, they are not an easy group to communicate with. But I, I have to take a shot. Because uh, I, I read the letter, uh, and it says clearly in number one, districts that are contemplating removing a school from service are required to notify the MSBA six months in advance of the intended closing. The town has satisfied this requirement and should keep the MSBA updated as the town council, as the town further develops its plan. Does it not say we've done it? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like. It just didn't like it. I, 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 I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm not reading, just, I'm reading the email that just, was sent, and it clearly says that we satisfied it. Yeah. Can we? Talk to the school committee and see if there's yeah, another option. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, if sure. you read number I, I, one, it clearly says that. So, really. Thank you. I just want to add in a couple more, a couple more quick points. I know that this, I know this feels frustrating, and I firmly respect that for a lot of people. Okay, 
But we also have to respect the school committee's territory on this. And I know we do. They just had an election like everybody did. They have a lot of new members. They just established a state's needs and facilities assessment subcommittee to deal with the issues all of you are aware with in terms of the overall issues with facilities, space, use of the schools. There's a learning curve. I think many new members would argue that's the same thing. There's a learning curve to a lot of this. And I think what we've been trying to do is be as courteous and respectful of the school committee's procedure on this. But I will certainly reach out to the superintendent of the school committee tomorrow and ask them what their future plans are on that. And, and I want to be clear. My shot was not at the school committee. Understood. My shot is clearly at yeah. MSBA, Brian Kelly, who wrote this email. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got it. So, yeah. Sorry. No, I, <laughs> I, I read that, Mr. Chairman. That's a valid piece of, uh, piece of email right there. But I think in regards to if, in respect to the school committee, if we have to wait six months, um, it doesn't change the fact that we should be giving some thought into oh, yeah. what our objective potential oh, yeah, probably should be. I mean, even if it means, there's, there's no, as far as my understanding of the rules, there's nothing that can prevent us no. from putting forth anything for protected sure. proposal uses sure. of those buildings. So even if we wanted to start establishing some kind of a subcommittee towards the addressing the use of the data there, could we can always set that up now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We could. Yeah. Mr. Chairman. <coughs> is this something that um, our attorney can look into for us? I mean, Number one, the schools have their own legal cause. Number two, uh, it, I don't have any way any better than any of you to deal directly with the MSCA. <laughs> uh, number three, I, I, should, I haven't been intimately involved with this. My gut reaction is what they're basically saying is don't do anything that's irreversible. I think about declaring it surplus or move ahead with a worse disposition and that that's what it relates to, which again would not foreclose you going to a planning exercise. Right. Uh, I guess uh, my concern is the six months, because it clearly says in here that that's been satisfied. That requirement has been satisfied. Then why do we have to wait? So I just like clarity on that. I know it won't be easy to get it from MSBA, but I would certainly like an attempt made to get that clarity. That was, very good that was very good of you to get that letter to be able to read that to us and let us know exactly what's happening. Thank you. Thank you, Council Flagler. <coughs> Any other questions or comments on the town administrator's report? No. Okay. Oh. Could I just ask you, uh, through you, the, the <laughs> 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 we can hear about this. Who are you? Uh, the gentleman's Rick Sacconi, Chester Street. The gentleman whose whose name you what is his title? This gentleman. General uh, he's the uh, Deputy General Counsel. And he says we've met the requirements. That's, that's how you read it? That's how I read it. And it I'm looking like I'm looking to get clarity. We should not just one again, as I said before, one man's opinion. 
We should not wait six months. We okay. have from their legal counsel. Who I else? gotta say it. I'm sorry. Who else? Okay. I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman. The people coming here, with all due respect, Mr. Ciccone, I respect the fact that you come and make a comment. This is a school committee policy decision, and I know everybody here understands that. If we're looking to move the ball down the field on this more significantly, we should be aiming our energy at the school committee from citizens who feel that we should start moving this along and wrap it up. Right. And ultimately, I, I've been trying to toe a fine line with respecting their jurisdiction, and this is a complicated matter, and there's a lot of new members, and they're trying to get up to speed. I'm just trying to respect the school police process. So if Mr. Ciccone wants to move this up, you know, I do, I would respectfully ask you to go to the school committee meetings and talk to those members and advocate that they, that, you declare know. Declare it surplus. Declare it surplus. Thank you. Do I still? Um, I watch the school committee meetings. I'm, I'm messed up like that. And I haven't heard them discuss this. It sounds to me, with all due respect, it seems like this is just the superintendent's decision. I, I have never heard the I have never heard that school committee. School committees, I will tell you because I know the law when it comes to this. Tom, if I may, while I have the while I have the floor, I have not heard them discuss this. It seems, again, just an opinion, that this is the superintendent's way of saying we're going to hold off. That committee is all new, or 80% of it's new yeah. folks. They have not discussed this, oh, at least not an open meeting. So I could, I may be wrong in what I'm saying. They could have discussed it under, uh, help me, uh, exactly. Exactly. thank you, but it has not been discussed in open meeting. Thank you. I, uh, okay. Thank you. Okay, I think we've beat this a little bit. Uh, enough. So, uh, if you just get clarification uh, as best you can, and I know it won't be easy. Uh, subcommittee reports. Uh, EDC, I think, is the only one. That Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yes, the EDC Plus Steering Committee met tonight. Uh, we we kind of took a breath and discussed things, how we thought our the process of the Frank the Brawl was going. Um, we started to talk about some of the ideas where we want to focus, and um, it was nice to start to have this conversation um, just within the steering committee. There is a new, the next public forum about the Franklin for All project will be at the Black Box on May 16th at 6.30, so hopefully everyone, it will be a hybrid meeting, so you can be there or you can zoom in and uh, hopefully a lot of people will attend that. We should get a, some of the high-end uh, recommendations of some zoning um, at this forum, so it would be nice for people to be there and to be ready um, to give their opinions. And I know that we have a lot of people that will give us their opinion. Um, so thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Councilor Hamlin. Uh, I think that was the only subcommittee that mm -hmm. had met uh, future agenda items. Councilor Sharon. Councilor Frangelo. So we don't give up on parking. <laughs> we won't. Okay. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to allow us. So, Councilor Hamlin. Nothing at this time. Councilor Cormier Ledger. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I apologize for the fact that it's 10:30, but I do have a couple to sure to sure. bring up. 
Uh, one to Mr. Cass's point brought up what seems like days ago about the climate crisis, and I think we should put as a future agenda item some way to address that and maybe plans as a town. Maybe it's interdepartmental, but you know some sort of discussion to address the climate change concerns. Uh, to Congressman Oshinkwas's point, I think a future agenda item about the parking garage at the MBTA site being a partnership discussion between local, state, and BTA and federal. I think it's an excellent one. I would love to see it on the docket just so we continue to carry it forward. He sounded open to it. There might be obvious uh, possibilities and a lot of work there, but we, we heard from multiple people parking's an issue and that that might be a way to solve that. Uh, and finally, if we have these 24 lease spaces available to merchants and nobody's using them, nobody's buying them, then I really do think we need to review those 24 spaces as a legislative entity and maybe come up with a different use for them. And thank you. We will be doing that. Okay. So, yeah. Thank you, Councilor Council Pleasure. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, I think since, since one of my future agenda items was to invite Congressman Agent Klaus here, and that was successful, I'd like to add to a future agenda to invite Gandhi in for one of our meetings. Maybe we would have to show. So, like, that's it, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> Come, Come on, folks. How do you invite the dad? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea with the MBTA. There are two people who will show up, the state and the congressman. The team won't show up. Trust me. <laughs> Uh, no, nothing at this time. Trust me, I've worked here 23 years. <laughs> uh, just uh, on a lighter future agenda item, I would uh, think that maybe it might be a good time to bring in Ben Franklin and bring in Jamie and He's coming just soon. talk about a little bit about what they've been doing where they visited, uh, plus give the community a little uh, knowledge as to what's going on. I could use Ben too. <laughs> we'll get him <laughs> off it. It'll be a direct order. He's up at King Street. Traffic, parking, meeting, the rest of the year. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Uh, let's see. Councilor Comments. Councilor Cormier Ledger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll do a positive and a negative. Okay. Uh, my positive would be congratulations to Lucas Gutierre on being appointed by the school committee as our new acting superintendent of schools. Very, very well deserved. Excellent choice. Great guy. Mm -hmm. My negative, just to echo the frustrations of other people on this board, I think the Davis there conversation has been going on too long. I think we just need to come to a resolution. If it's on the school committee, say so. If it's on this other entity that's hard to get a hold of, then say so. The school closed months ago. It's negligent on our part at this point to our constituents not to be moving this forward. To delay this another six months is unacceptable. Thank you. Thank you. Council Plagley. I ditto everything that he just said, the two two, Mr. Lucas and the Davis Fair. Thank you. Councilor Sheridan. I'm much late. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Councilor Frangillo. Just do uh just do a fast. Rose Rail Committee race is Saturday at Remington Jefferson at nine in the morning. Uh we got the Metro West Arts and Culture Symposium. 
the 14th at the high school, Franklin for All, um, which has already been mentioned, and Empty Bowls, um, they do a fantastic fundraiser on the 19th at Franklin. Thank you, Councilor Frangelo. Councilor Hamlin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I just wanted to quickly thank the fire chief, firefighters, the DPW, everybody who got us to the number one rating because my um, homeowner's insurance premium went down. <laughs> so all that work, they're saving us money, and I think that's, that's awesome. Uh, thanks to Congressman Austin Kloss for being here. That was a great conversation. Um, the audit, the staff, um, Scott, it was amazing. Thank you to all the staff, does all this great work for us. Um, and finally, I'd like to thank my fellow counselors in the community for condolences about my dad. You know, he stayed at home with us throughout till the end, and I would sit with him at night. And one night he he would he would say these things to me, and he, he always like kind of like raised his eyebrow and he gave me this look, and he said, "Mel, I've always shied away from political involvement." But I'm proud of you. Don't give up. Continue to build your bridges. And so I've had a lot of people ask me, what can they do to help? And what helped me that they want to do more than just send me a card. So this is what everyone can do to help. They can help us build the bridges to, to create community unity, to treat each other with respect and kindness and allow other people to have different opinions and not to make fun of them and just to accept people even if they're different than you are. So um, with that I will say thank you and good night. Thank you, Councilor Hamlin. Councilor Jones. Uh, just too tight. I gave it up at four thirty. Councilor <laughs> I get up at four, so I'm with <laughs> Okay, uh, I just have a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'd like to again thank Congressman Auchincloss for uh, coming this evening. Uh, uh, I sent uh, his office an email a couple of months ago and just to see if he might come. And you know, that, he got back to me and said, sure, so let's work on a date. So, yeah. so, I'd like to thank him for coming. Uh, congratulate Lucas Javier as a new superintendent of schools. Uh, again, I'd be remiss if I didn't congratulate uh, Harriet DiMartino, uh, the DiMartinos, their lifelong friends. Uh, and I've known her since I was this high. So uh, congratulations on her 100th birthday. And again, offer my condolences to the Hamlet family. And uh, also, I'd like to offer condolences to my son-in-law and his family, the Narducci family, who uh, lost Jenny, uh, my son-in-law's mother, uh, this past weekend. So uh, condolences to the entire Narducci family. And with that, I would like to take a motion. So move. Second. Non-debatable. All those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? Good night. Good night. Thank you one and all.
We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.